This week on Punch Mountain, the charismatic Denzel Washington stars as a man who loves to read, and the electrifying Gary Oldman co-stars as the man who wants what Denzel is reading. Finish up that wet nap bath because we're watching The Book of Eli. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies, not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake. I'm joined as always by Mr. Good Book himself, David Hotta. Now, David, is the good book for you? It's not the Bible, is it? Or is it the rules by Neil Strauss? Or sorry, the game. Is yeah, the game? it's the game. Oh, let's see. What are you, entrapping me? Yeah, it's the game. It's by Neil Strauss. It's about the pickup community. Mystery is a big character in it. I read it. I know. Thanks for outing me, Mac. I'm doing well. How are you, honey? Honey. Why do I keep calling you honey? What is the rules? The rules was, that was the like one of those books in the mid-90s around the same time. It was like, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. But it was like, how to ensnare a man. Like, how to trick a man into loving you. I just looked it up. All the rules. Time-tested secrets for capturing the heart of Mr. Right. Oh, man. The links we've gone to to mess with ladies' heads. We got you, ladies. <laughs> but if you're listening to us with headphones, someone else is going to get in your head, listener. That's the worst possible introduction, but I don't care because we have a very exciting special guest. He's a comedian, a father, a lover. No, that's, I don't, Brian, why'd you make me read this? Uh, he also likes this show, and so uh, we like him when we wanted to have him on. Please welcome to Punch Man, Mr. Brian Gutman. Uh. I've been gagging for this moment for a long time. Thank you, guys. Oh, how dare uh, you? What, what, what how happened? How dare you? What, what happened? Brian, please explain what you mean by I'm gagging for it. Was that a reference to something? I just say that in my personal no. life all no. the time. It means <laughs> you just really want something. And I, did, I don't think a better answer was ever found for what that means, actually. So I will say, honestly, that comes from the Mission Impossible 2 yes, episode. Yes, yes. But I do want to ask you seriously, because this has happened to me ever since that episode, have you found yourself saying it? sincerely like has it slipped into your daily lexicon Ooh, not a for a second of my life that is the most <laughs> repulsive turn of phrase that one could ever ever use i don't know man because sometimes i'll be having a bad day and i'll just be gagging for some burger king and, and it fits i can't tell you it just fits. Uh, gagging for the king baby that's just the worst that's the fucking worst <laughs> oh my goodness thanks for having me guys speaking of gagging for brutal things <laughs> we're talking about the book of eli today Ooh. Yes, and the Book of Eli was one of your suggested titles. So let's get into it, Mr. Brian Gimmon. What made you suggest the Book of Eli? What's your history with this movie? I don't think I saw it in theaters. I must have seen it must have been soon after on video, but uh when I found out I was gonna be a Punch Mountain guest, I think within an hour I had my immediate short list of movies that like just like top of mind movies, and some of them were like comic book movies, but it's like I don't wanna put on like a superhero burnout on the mountain the way it has on the world <laughs> that's my job and uh and then i even thought like oh this will be an october episode do i do like what's like the most action-packed scary movie and i was like i'm not gonna make everyone go through freddy versus jason so somehow in my just quick throwing a list together book of eli just popped in my head and i think it's because i just remembered denzel was just this amazingly cool, violent dude in this movie that I haven't, which is very unlike me, rewatched a hundred times. This is a movie that I just remember, like, this is a movie where Denzel's really cool, and I saw it, like, once or twice since then. And so it was, uh, 
it was really that. It was just to like kind of revisit this thing that I just have this kind of vague, fond memory of uh, Denzel teaming up with a machete to just fuck people up. And uh, that that was really it. That was it. I was just like almost charmed by the fact that the idea of a movie I like that I haven't seen too many times now. Did I like it as much this time as I did all those times? That that will be determined as we talk about this. But yeah, that, that was kind of it. Oh, a little tease from Brian Teasman. How about you, David Hot? Have you seen this movie before? I had never seen this movie. I had never really regarded or thought of this movie. This was just one, you know, it, it's just kind of one of those that fills a screen in my estimation. Uh, well, I'll say this. Let me start from the start. When when Brian Gutman gave us a short list, I think you and I both agreed, Mac. They were like, you know what? Let's do Book of Eli because it's on this list. I'm not quite sure we would ever really be inspired to do this one. So let's go ahead and do it. And I was okay with that. But then I thought, okay, well, I got to find a copy of this. Wait a second. I have a copy of this. So about a couple years ago, around year one of the pandemic, my parents were like, they just moved houses. And so they reached out to me and they said, hey, we've, we're getting rid of all of our movies. Do you want our movies. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll open a video store one day. Let me give me everything you have. So this is one of the action titles that they've sent me. I actually, I have book of Eli. So this keeps esteemed company as the call by Halle Berry by Halle Berry, <laughs> um, the gray with Liam Neeson oh. <laughs> red and uh, law abiding citizen in that company. I'm like, Oh no. Oh, oh no. But I mean, giving this movie its fair shake, this movie came out in 2010, the same year as another Denzel action movie, Unstoppable, which I happen to love. But this is around the time that Denzel really started to plant his flag as I am taking the Liam Neeson route. Like you think about the movies that had come out prior to this, like he's still doing, you know, he did Inside Man a few years before this. He did American Gangster a couple years before this. So he's still doing quality stuff, but then... It's taking a Pelham 123. It's Book of Eli. It's Unstoppable. It's Safe House. It's Two Guns. It's The Equalizer. So that really piqued my interest where I was like, okay, let's, no pun intended, let's find the genesis of this Denzel Washington era. So I was very excited to watch this. I, I will say also, this is going to be one of the few movies I did not watch with the bombshell. Uh, you know, she's been very good about watching everything beforehand. You know, she wants to get a sense of these episodes or these movies before the episodes. But she had heard or, or in her research, she found out there might be some problematic elements to this movie. So I, I, I was like, OK, I'm going at this alone. And uh, I felt really alone watching this movie. <laughs> will, will it come through in my in my review of it? I will find out. Uh, Mac, what, what are your opening thoughts on the Book of Eli? Yeah, I feel like I saw it at home shortly after it, it came out. I remember thinking it was cool. There is like a Bible reveal at the end. And I think that was enough for me to be like, that's kind of like a Christian action movie. There is a big chunk of this movie I did not understand. And we will we will talk about that at the time. So I'll admit it right away. I was kind of a Book of Eli, a dummy. But I, overall, I was impressed by this movie. To me, it felt like kind of a step up for the directors. And the director team here are the Hughes brothers, which I'll be honest with you, I've not seen a lot of their stuff. Like I, I was not of age when like Minutes to Society came out. So I did not see that. I remember seeing and liking From Hell, their take on the Alan Moore, Jack the Ripper graphic novel. <laughs> novel? Yeah, novel. It's, it's the British way the, the, it's the, way the Brits say novel. But then later I read that novel, and after that I watched the From Hell movie, and I was like, this is a clown show. So I, <laughs> I kind of have a little trepidatious about rewatching it. But the interesting thing to me is when I think of this movie, you know, I think of Denzel Washington. When I saw that you suggested the movie, Brian, I was like, oh, what do I remember about this movie? 
something that did not come to mind was the action. I was like, oh, is this like an action-packed movie? So I was very excited to see that. And yeah, you're right. It is like this phase of Denzel where he's like suddenly a hand-to-hand combat stud. And I was looking at his IMDb and is this the movie where it happened? I have to go back and rewatch Virtuosity, the movie where he takes apart a like uh, a VR program come to life in Russell Crowe. Because I remember in, in the Equalizer movie is that the dude's like a, a beast. And yeah, and Safe House too. But it's like, I guess this, you know, to David's point, I guess this is maybe when it started. This was his uh, second half of the career, older, I'm, a, I'm an ass-kicking machine, Liam Neeson taken period. I wonder if there is a thing, if you could graph it, where there is like the actor who at some point like flips a switch and they want to get that action movie resume going. Like the Liam Neeson, Denzel, Tom Cruise, who just like, what is that point where you lay that foundation of, I need to make sure people know I can bring the goods as an actor. And then now I just want to really do some popcorn munch and fun or whatever. Like, yeah, I didn't think about it, but like comparing to Liam Neeson, it's like, oh yeah, these are, they're good actors. And then they dive into these movies that aren't necessarily all bad, but are just like, it's such a tonal shift. I think it's because they're aging with their audience at this point. You know, with the exception of Tom Cruise from your examples, like Liam Neeson's getting up, you know, at the time of Taken, at the time when Taken came out, he was getting up into his 50s or 60s. Denzel's in his 50s when this, when Book of Eli comes out. I think about Clint Eastwood, we've talked about The Mule in a past episode where like that's almost elderly fantasy where it's like, oh, I can still be a drug runner and have a three-way? All right. So I think this is just one of those, this is that era for Denzel where he's like, you know, let me buy a house with what, you know, with the movies I can, I can pull now. So let me just do some action stuff. Let me bring in an older audience and we'll all be happy. You know, but there was a period of time when I feel like Matt Damon was America's most prominent action movie star. And that at some point was very unlikely, (laughs) but now it's like, oh, Matt Damon's in it. Oh yeah, yeah. He probably like takes down like nine dudes at once. You know, maybe when Dune part two comes out. Well, I'll be like crossing to the other side of the street. We see Timothy Chalamet. It's like, that's a bad man over there. I don't want Chalamet turning me into water or what? I don't know those movies. Okay. Hey, before we go any farther, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search the Book of Eli on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions. So we'll do some quickly provided answers. David, is the Book of Eli a religious movie? Yes, mom and dad. Let's watch it together. Mac, what was the point of the Book of Eli? (laughs) I'm 100% sure David is reading his bad. Burn them all. Hey, Brian, what did Denzel Washington say about the Book of Eli? Denzel said it was an honor to play a character that portrayed his two favorite characters, Jesus Christ and Jason Voorhees. Hey, David, what Bible was used in the Book of Eli? That'll be the King James Bible. That's right. LeBron James wrote a Bible. (laughs) Hey, before we dive into the story of a man who will go to extraordinary lengths to protect a Bible... Let's check in with some friends who will go to extraordinary lengths to protect their near mint condition copies of Action Comics issue 593. God damn it, Mac. Is that the one where Superman is hypnotized and forced to film a porno? The very same. It's a friendship check-in. Our friendship, y'all. Let's start with you, David Hada. How you doing? I'm run down, my dude. I am worn out. Like, I've been tired all day. I, I took a I took a nap after work, and I woke up from that nap feeling like I had been hungover all day. Where it's like you wake up at six o'clock, you're kind of hungry, you're a little groggy, but you're also wondering, where am I going tonight? Like, where, what am I going to do again? But like, here's the thing, Mac, I don't drink that much anymore. I don't, I don't drink on a weekday. I'll say that. I don't know why I'm being controversial about this. Like (laughs) it is the middle of the week. I'm not drinking. I'm not drunk. I'm not hungover. Why am I so worn down? Have I, have I reached my action movie era? 
I know what you're talking about. The naps where you wake up and you're somehow more tired. That's just a betrayal. That just fucking sucks. I, I, I wanted, you know, because I was I was looking forward to this uh, to this episode. Uh, we had a bit of a delay in scheduling. So, you know, I, I had a night off last night, the night before when we were planning on scheduling. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to play some video games. I haven't played a video game since our last inventory episode. So middle of the summer, something like that, easily a couple months. I was too tired to play a video game. I couldn't even like swing the bat. I got into the batter's box. I'm playing MLB The Show. Shohei Otani throws a 102 mile hour fastball. I'm like, I'm done. Like I couldn't even keep up with it. I was like, no, this isn't going to happen today. I can't hit the triangle button with these conditions. Look, Brian, you uh, one time, I believe it was during Mac's bachelor party. I was too drunk to play Mario Kart. I could not keep it on the road. <laughs> oh, that's got it. That feels like almost like. Drunk driver fantasy camp, though, where you're just like, I'm, it's finally okay to do this. One would think, but no. Yeah. Oh, I was man. at a party. It was a it was a party full of comedians. And I remember, David, you were there because uh, we went after a, a Master Pancake show. People were playing Mad Libs. And I remember, like, people were done playing Mad Libs, but I was like, let's do one more. Let's do one more. Let's do come on. And I made everyone, like, say their fucking suggestions. I wrote them all down. And then when it came time to read it, I was too drunk to read my drunken handwriting. <laughs> and I was like, I can't read a fucking word of this. Sorry, y'all. And it just, oh, man, if I could. Another moment where I was like, well, thank God there's not a catapult here because I would just crawl into it and just catapult myself to <laughs> Pflugerville or something. I wonder, how are you doing, Brian Gubbin? I'm good. Family, crazy world stuff. But uh, the newest thing that happened to me was before this recording, I swung by because I do drink on a weekday. So I swung by to get something to make my little refreshments. And uh, there's a place around the corner I go to. And I guess I've entered into a familiar faces category uh -oh. of the joint. That could go either way. <laughs> yeah, because as the gentleman was ringing me up, he just reached under the counter and gave me a hat. Oh, just gave wow. me, it just gave it just like, I guess it's like, we don't have a bell that goes off when you're the millionth customer, but we'll give you this hat. I don't know what it was. It doesn't have the store name on it, but he just like, I don't know. I don't know if it's just close to closing time. He just like had a box of hats, but he just handed me that. And I was like, I guess, I guess this guy really, uh, trusts me to get the word out about this place or something. I don't know. So it was, a it was a weird moment. Brian, can I ask you a personal question? Were you bleeding from the head at the time? I had walked through the glass door as opposed to oh, opening it. So maybe okay. it was to sop up some maybe. of the, the gore. <laughs> the gore. Thanks, Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> I love describing blood and stuff as yeah. just gore. It's, it's oh, honestly it so like timeless. the perfect word, yes. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's so good. Ah. So with that in mind, next time you go to that, that liquor store, convenience store, are you going to wear the hat? I actually... I wasn't, this happened so just moments ago that I wasn't thinking about it, but I absolutely need to and just see if this is like, there's a discount that comes with uh, pushing this, uh, you know, advertising around or something, but for sure. And maybe going to uh, have shirts made with the same uh, logos and stuff on it. See him and raise him. I love this idea. <laughs> Give him a shirt. Yes. Uh, you get it. You get it. <laughs> Brian, can I ask you what uh, alcohol you're purchasing? I just got some classic Tito's because I'm a Texan at heart. Uh, yeah, just doing a classic vodka tonic. That sounds good. I, I asked because I remember you, for the longest time, you were a wine guy. Whenever I saw you, you were enjoying a glass of wine. And this is back, this was in prime, like, uh, we're all really shitty, like ball busting, just exhausting to be around kind of people. Like, the <laughs> where if somebody tried to do anything outside of, like, what was expected... They just get harassed yeah. and I was like, no, Brian is confidently enjoying that wine. He 
Is, is wine good? Is, is wine all right? Should I drink wine? <laughs> yeah, I did go through a real wine phase. But you, no matter how much you enjoy it, you cannot bring that on stage. You cannot bring even comedy club wine. You cannot bring that on the stage because you just look like you're about to really lecture these people as opposed to entertain them. But I've really uh, have fallen out. I can't, I don't enjoy wine at all. It's like liquid sponge that just like completely dehydrates my (laughs) entire being. I don't enjoy it anymore. And it's, it took me by surprise how much I don't enjoy it anymore. Don't worry. Just straight hard liquor from now on, guys. (laughs) Mellow out your older years, of course. (laughs) That's right. This is my action movie phase. (laughs) I remember I was at this uh, newspaper office one time, and our our friend and fellow comedian, Brian Garr, was working at that newspaper. And I walked past, I'm like, oh, there's my friend Brian. And he was sitting on a yoga ball. And like now, if I see some friend sitting on a yoga ball, I'll be like, oh, man, good for you, you know, trying to do something or whatever for your your back or what have you. I don't actually remember the benefits of those things. Is it just to help your knees? I think it's your back. Yeah. But this is back when I was still just like a, a uh, just a, you know, an exhausting shitty person. <laughs> I remember I saw the yoga ball. I was like, hey, yo, Brian, what's up? You practicing for bouncing on that dick, man? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, I, I've got your back, man. I No, don't. There's a little bit of don't all that. Don't get my back. I, Sh- shove me off a mountain. Not Punch Mountain. Copyright. <laughs> <laughs> Mountain Co. There's a little bit of that workplace when it's workplace aesthetic, where it's just like, "What's next? Slides instead of stairs? Like, get out of here!" Yeah, but Mac wasn't working there. No, he was a visitor. True. Completely true. Yeah, Mac was just delivering <laughs> shittiness. <laughs> people are not born hating other people. That is something they are taught, and at some point, we have those people. Hopefully, they have uh, others around them who are patient and will help them with empathy and uh, other perspectives, you know, learn to show and give people proper respect. And uh, yeah, and I thank God someone hit me on the head with that frying pan when I turned 27. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't have to be this way around people anymore. I don't have to be an exhausting prick. By the way, 27, eh, 35. Um, <laughs> very generous, very generous. Mac Blake, how you doing, big cat? To kick it back five seconds for that Superman reference, yes, that is a real thing that happened. And Action Comics uh, 593, I had to look it up, but I remember it was written and uh, drawn by John Byrne. And there's a, a villain named Sleaze that I don't think they actually filmed the porno, but he tried to get Superman and like Big Barda. They were like just about to fuck in front of uh, Big Barda, <laughs> just about to cuck Big Barda's husband, Mr. Miracle. Now that I, I say this, I need to check that comic down and reread it because I'm like, wait, wh- wait, what actually did happen? But it got me thinking. And I don't know about this, but uh, I use Chrome's incognito mode a lot. And, and the main driver for me using it, though, is just to like look up stuff I just don't want to stick in the algorithm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if I search like, oh, my kid wants to see a monster truck show, monster truck tickets. For like the next month, I'll get so much like targeted monster truck stuff. But then I also realize it, it's kind of grown my incognito use to where it's almost like regular Chrome, my browser of choice, is like, uh, my my cool friends and incognito mode is like my best friend though. And so I can be, I'm not as worried about saying something stupid in front of my best friend. Like the last thing I switched to incognito mode to search for before the Superman uh, makes a porno is I was reading some article about a new Sonic the Hedgehog game. Yep. That's where I am in life. Yeah. And the article would reference like, well, the music probably won't be as good as Sonic 3. As we all know, Michael Jackson contributed to that. And I was like, wait, what? Is that a joke? Is this a, a reference to something I don't get? 
And I opened up the incognito mode browser and I wrote like, did Michael Jackson write the music for Sonic 3? <laughs> Just in case the results were no stupid. I like didn't want regular <laughs> Google to see that. I wanted regular Google to, or Chrome to think I was cool. But uh, yeah, it turns out he did. He, he liked what? it. Yeah, but he was uncredited because at the end of the day, he was like, this, this sound sucks. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's like a 16-bit video game. And he's like, well, just don't put my name on it. Whoa. I am absolutely tomorrow morning playing Sonic 3 just to experience that. That's wild. Yeah, Sonic 3 is the one where Knuckles keeps that orangutan or chimpanzee as a pet. And then in in level six, uh, the chimpanzee grows too big and Sonic has to kill it. It's really fucked up. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Hey, speaking of fucked up, you guys ready to travel to the post-apocalypse? Mac, toss me my sunglasses. We're going in. All right, David, in case someone has not seen Book of Eli before or it's been a while, just a level set. Can you give the back of the box description? You bet I can. Eli walks alone in post-apocalyptic America. He heads west along the highway of death on a mission he doesn't fully understand, but he knows he must complete. In his backpack is the last copy of a book that could become the wellspring of a revived society. Or in the wrong hands, the hammer of a despot. Okay, calm down. (laughs) (laughs) Denzel Washington is Eli, who keeps his blade sharp and his survival instinct sharper as his quest thrusts him into a savage wasteland and into explosive conflict with a resourceful warlord, Gary Oldman, set on possessing the book. We walk by faith, not by sight, quotes Eli. Under the taut direction of the Hughes Brothers Menace to Society, those words hit home with an unexpected meaning and power. 2010, 118 minutes, directed by the Hughes Brothers, rated R for some brutal violence and language. I'm a little horny. Like, that uh, description <laughs> is pretty good. Denzel Washington uh, is Eli, who keeps his blade sharper, survival instinct sharper, as his quest thrust him into a savage wasteland, as opposed to those, like, nice wastelands, and into explosive conflict with a resourceful warlord. God damn, that's a fucking <laughs> sentence right there. Holy shit. Pull my hair back in the box. <laughs> I know, spit in my <laughs> mouth. <laughs> Choke me, Zaddy, come on. What's going on here? <laughs> Break my ankles. But reading this also, like, you know, I'm going to try real hard not to not to couch this movie in the context of it being a faith-based movie. But reading the back of this box, it really does feel like something I'd get at a Christian bookstore. Where, like, they're a little too over-explanatory about it. And at the same time, they're trying to sell you with, like, evocative imagery. I don't know. Th- this uh, this feels right at home. At, like, what was it? His Word in Houston? Yeah. <laughs> His Word bookstore. Oh, wow. So, yeah, in case you've not seen this movie before, uh, there is some Christian themes in here. Which, you know, at some moments, I think, are like, oh, okay, uh, this is, I'm into this. Because I'm not a religious person. But there is some stuff where it's like, oh, man, just dial this back, Kirk Cameron. I don't know. But we'll, we'll get into it. Has there ever been a back-of-the-box movie description that actually quotes the character in the movie? Oh. That was crazy. It's not just a memorable quote, but it even cites their source. It'd be like, life finds a way, said John Hammond, as they, <laughs> da, 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 da. it's just, they actually quote Eli in the thing. I That really threw me. The closest I can remember is The Road Warrior. It quoted the director, George Miller. It was like, hey, you've had two hours to put on screen. What else do you have to say about this? And, they, <laughs> and he gave some pull quotes on it. Yeah, that was unexpected. I have not experienced that. It makes me think this character is very loquacious. I can't wait to hear more of him uh, talking. <laughs> All right. How does this movie start? All right. This movie starts 30 years after very soon, when war led to apocalypse. We followed the nomadic Eli, played by Denzel Washington, through presumably a typical day in the life of a survivor. Hunting hairless cats, listening to music on an iPod. And that's a first-gen iPod. 
Not even a click wheel, guys. Buttons. All right, Mac. And taking a quick wet nap bath. We also see the bad parts of his day, like avoiding cannibal traps and fighting gangs of marauders. To his credit, Eli is very good at fighting off marauders. All right, an immediate wuss warning for this movie. And in case you don't know what a wuss warning is, uh, we were kind of wusses about certain things. And we know some of our listeners are equally as as wussy. And something that I tend to be a wuss about is uh, violence to animals. So yes, at the beginning of this movie, a hooded figure, presumably Eli, is hunting for meat in the forest. And he does shoot a hairless cat uh, with an arrow. And doesn't make that, like, I don't know, we call arrow shot animal noise. Uh, yes, it does. <laughs> it does make the death call noise. So yeah, go ahead and fast forward three minutes of this movie if you don't want to see that. That was really, and it's a real one-two punch of your first watching that cat. It's a borderline JFC moment of that cat eating a dead man's foot. And oh. you're just like, wow, this is gross. Because uh, I, I I didn't realize at first, like, oh, this is... Oh, was it? Yeah, there is. And I realized, like, oh, this is bait that Eli has set for just whatever comes along. And then it goes full JFC when you just, like, the camera does not cut away. We're going to watch this arrow T-bone this hairless cat. It was brutal. So I'm going to try not to do this a lot while we're talking about this movie. But, you know, this was your pick. Brian Gutman. <laughs> I did I knew nothing about this. So it's starting off with a cat killing, and I'm like, how much don't I know about Brian Gutman? <laughs> I'm learning how much I don't know about myself. <laughs> but I mean, I I was immediately struck with the thought of like, oh, is it gonna be this kind of a movie where it's like I, I get what it's doing. It wants to show that it's a brutal wasteland. You know, it is it is an apocalypse where survival is the primary objective. So you're going to kill those things that we hold dear that, you know, that we, we, you know, that we have as pets. You're going to, you're going to want them for food come 30 years from now. So I get it, but like, okay, I'm, we're establishing what kind of movie this is with that. There really is at no point in this movie subtlety. There might be (laughs) slow pacing, but there's not subtlety. And so you could absolutely still have that same scene and still maybe off screen the sounds of whatever and this and that and have like a more roundabout artistic thing. But they're just like, we want you to know what kind of hardcore movie we're about to make right now. And so you just see it. And that was a JFC moment for me, for sure. And by JFC, of course, you mean what, what Brian Gutman? Jesus fucking Christ. Jesus fucking Christ. Feels weird to say in this movie of all movies. Question though. So this cat, it was not a normal cat. It was one of those hairless like Sphinx cats. Why use a hairless cat? Like storytelling reasons. Are we, is it just like, oh, that was a cool looking cat? Or are we supposed to believe, no, man, this is a normal cat in the future. Uh, cats don't have hair anymore because that's how bad things are. My little quick little two second theory was like, we have this scene where Eli, look, we wish he didn't have to kill this cat, right? <laughs> don't worry, guys. It's one of those hairless cats. Oh, gross. This might as well be a possum. If this cat was the slightest bit cute, people would have walked out of the theater. Like, what the fuck? I'm not watching Antichrist. He's just shooting walking meat. See, because the cat was hairless, to me, it felt more vulnerable. So this was worse than killing like a, uh, you know, a big bushy cat. I don't know. But we see uh, Eli, he's like wandering around the savage wasteland. He stops uh, and like looks in a car and there's like a full skeleton in the car. I guess it's either it died naked or it's clothes dissolve super fast. It doesn't matter. I did not even think about that. It's just a spirit Halloween 
skellington just in the driver's seat with no clothes the clothes got raptured oh no well we've already seen you know we'll see coming up that denzel is taking the boots off of a dead person so i figured these skeletons have already Ah. been picked clean but like how desperate do you have to be to be like i gotta get those pants off that skeleton (laughs) wriggle them off boys (laughs) are those banana republic (laughs) yeah in this moment too this initial just walking down the highway is the first of many moments where I really stopped and wondered, but did not research, is this movie based on a graphic novel mm. that I don't know about? It is so graphic novely in its presentation. This movie visually just uh, intrigued me and confused me a, a bit. And r- right from the get-go, wondered or almost kind of assumed that this must be some graphic novel that I just don't know about. No, good news. This is from the visionary minds of the Hughes brothers. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. It did have kind of like a uh, comic book uh, type feel. You know, you find a later, it's like, oh, this is by European comics master, etc. It's like, yeah, that would have made perfect sense. But Eli, uh, he wanders into this house where he, you know, he finds like a uh, a body hanging, you know, I, I guess the owner of the house like hung himself. And then, you know, he decides to spend the, the night there and he starts cooking up some of that cat meat. But it can't be that good because Eli feeds the cat meat to, the, to a, a visiting uh, mouse. So how about that, mice? The meek shall inherit the earth. He will one day <laughs> feast upon the things that used to feast upon you. Thank you, Denzel Washington. I thought this took place in Soviet Russia where you had where <laughs> mouse eats cat. But thank God this uh, mouse shows up because it gives Denzel someone to talk to. Because we go eight minutes and 14 seconds into this movie before anyone says anything. And it's Denzel talking to himself, taking off the boots going, oh, this is nice. These are nice boots. Again, this is what this movie is going to be. It's going to be a very spare movie, one might think. But uh, 8 minutes 14, for me to look at the time code on it, that's alarming. And I might be very, very alone in this, but when he was putting on those boots and he's doing that like, it's nice, it's nice, it's nice. It (laughs) instantly reminded me of, towards the end of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Chevy Chase's (laughs) He's melting down. He's had. He's at the end of his rope, and he's just like chugging that eggnog. And he goes, "It's good. It's good." It's the exact <laughs> same delivery and almost the same words. It was really weird. I don't know. Like I've just seen that movie so many times that that just threw me right back to that. But um, I, I love how much Denzel was really feeling himself once he put those new boots on. He does like a like post-apocalyptic catwalk strut around that little room. He loves those boots. You'd think he was back in year 28 of the apocalypse instead of year 30. <laughs> he's, right. just, he's got a whole new lease on life. But then uh, in a classic show, don't tell move, Eli gives himself uh, what we call a Kentucky bath, which is that instead of a shower, uh, when you clean yourself with some uh, some wet wipes that came from Kentucky Fried Chicken, and we see uh, Eli's back and it's disgusting. It's like all scarred up, like he's been burned or fucked up. I guess the apocalypse is tough, y'all. I did just write... Ugh! In my notes, like that was re- that back was disgusting. That was a Freddy Krueger back. It was definitely there as a shorthand to tell you, "Whoa, the the apocalypse has been really rough." But I sure would have liked for them to go back to it at some point. Like I know as the movie goes on, they'll talk about like the, how the sun plays a role in disabling pretty much all of the population. But like, was the sun that hot? And also, was it that specific to get just like his upper back? Was he wearing like? A low-hanging tank, like he was a bodybuilder. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. And the sun cooled off since then. Yeah, it was like very targeted, very specific. But now you can just go about on every highway, just going about your business. It's a dry heat. Well, I'm sure that asphalt's nice and cool too. Yeah. <laughs> but in order to chill out, 
uh, Eli, uh, he, he pulls out uh, an old iPod, right? That's right. First generation. Like you said, not even a click wheel. Uh, it's one of those big bricks. And he's listening to some Al Green. How can you mend a broken heart? He has a little battery that he hooks up to the to the iPod. And he lets that thing play him to sleep. He wakes up the next morning. The battery's dead. The iPod's dead. So immediately we learn that Denzel Washington has no sense of conservation. Like we're 30 years into this apocalypse. There's no sense of like preciousness. Like, okay, enjoy the things while you have them. Save them for later. No, no, no. He's just burning through this iPod and this battery. Yeah, I won't go to sleep now until I know my phone is either massively charged or plugged into a source of electricity. This guy, this is one of the only things he has to cling on to and is just reckless as heck with that thing. That is wild. I wasn't even thinking about that till just now, but you can even fall asleep knowing that that battery is clicking down is crazy. Yeah, because now it's like, my phone's at 65%. I'm fucked. <laughs> yes, be terrified. But it's also, you know, not to be that tech jerk about it, but like, I guess the apocalypse happened before planned obsolescence. We're like, I kept thinking, man, is that thing still working? It didn't have like a software update. It didn't like cr- immediately crap out when the iPod 2 came out. Like he's still riding that thing. Good for him. Uh, but as he goes about the wasteland, he encounters a lady who's like, help, help. I'm an obvious trap. <laughs> Eli, though, is like, yeah, where are the other people that are going to jump out and try to attack me? And uh, the other people jump out and they go, hey, we were going to attack you. But, but here's the thing about Eli. It's not just because this lady is obviously setting a trap. He knows there's other people because he's got some kind of like special sense because he, he can he says he can smell them. Yeah, in fact, let's play this audio right here. He'll he'll you know the jig is up right now. And the only good thing about no soap is that you can smell hijackers a mile off. I am impressed. This man smells us from 30 feet away. <laughs> What's that say about our hygiene? So, Mac, I have a problem with this in every movie we've done that's set in the future where they acknowledge something and we as the audience are are interpreting this for the first time. But again, this apocalypse has been going on for 30 years. You have to assume they ran out of soap 28 years ago. So for him to, like, even reference the fact that these marauders smell and that he could smell them. Oh, it's a good thing about no soap. Like, we, we don't need this. But uh, But the movie thinks we do. Eh, didn't bother me. <laughs> Seemed okay. But no, I, I get what you're saying, David, because it's like the thing, good thing about not having soap and one of the Marauders could have been like, hey, man, no one gets these references because you're right. It's not a, it is for us, the audience. <laughs> See, I'm going to do a quick punch up here. I think if the Marauders were sort of, if they were like dandies, you know, if they stole and they pillaged so that they could get people soaps and shampoos and toiletries and fineries. So then when Eli gets conned by this trap, he can say, oh, no, I smelled you a mile away because you smell good. That's one thing that this apocalypse does not have is good smelling things. So get over here and line up for your beatings. Or they emerge, they round the corner or round after wherever they were hiding from. And they get to do the line of the nice thing about no soap is you can smell people a mile away. Unlike us. We got soap. You didn't smell shit, buddy. I promise that's the last bad thing I say about this movie. And the leader of the Marauders is like, hey, man, we're going to kill you and eat you, man. And Eli's like, hey, you touch me one more time and I'm going to cut off your fucking hand. I don't, that's not an exact quote. And sure enough, whips out the machete and just in a blink of an eye, the leader of the Marauders is, is minus one hand. And you're like, oh, shit. That was, a, that was a cool move. But he's surrounded 
by all these other marauders, right? And so here we have, it's our first action set piece. Uh, we'll call it Shadow Fight, because in order to take these dudes on, he slowly backs up. So where he's no longer just in the middle of the road, exposed by the sun, he's underneath like the overpass in shadows. And that's where he takes all these dudes down. And now before we talk about this action set piece, it is funny because the action set pieces in this movie, none of them are very like big. They're not like ambitious set pieces. They're just fights. They're like small fights. And at first I was like, oh, should I even call this an action set piece? It's kind of just like a fight. However, there is a level of like choreography and not just like in the hand-to-hand fighting, but in also in how they are framed. Where I was like, yeah, man, I'm going to show proper respect. I think the, I'm going to go ahead and call these set pieces. And I thought this was a really neat fight. I, I agree. Yeah, I, I think you're making the right call with that. I agree too. This was a neat silhouette fight. I think more so than marking out at, at any of these fights in the movie, I think I was just impressed by the fights in this movie. This one in particular, you know, it's such a pretty fight. You can tell the movie is picking art over action. It's picking the fights to advance the story instead of being a showpiece or instead of being the thing you talk about later. It's like, oh my God, Denzel. It's like, no, it's just, it is a part of Eli's day. It's a part of Eli's life. But that said, not really knowing what this movie is going to be or how it's going to feel, I thought this was an excellent introduction to Eli as a nomadic ass kicker. Yeah, I, uh, this was a, the, that specifically with the hand, that moment of you touch me again, you won't get that hand back. And then delivering on that in like that split second was, I, I love that. That was a mark out moment for me. And then the rest of it was just a really cool, like, like you said, uh, just the way it's framed, the silhouettes, the way it is like a good, like, it's not just kind of what's been talked about in previous episodes. Like, okay, this guy's going to come at me. I'm going to deal with that guy. Now this guy will come at me. It was so well planned out and just uh, presented that I really liked all. And you're so right. Like the, every fight, they're so, they're almost too short. Like the, cause they're so well done. You just, you do kind of get left wanting more, but uh, yeah, I really like, especially this first one, uh, just the way the whole thing was presented. It is funny for him to back into the shadows as if like I've leveled the playing field. It is still broad daylight outside, my man. It is just you're under a bridge, but they're not just like where where'd he go? Is where is that? This is not a Batman fight. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. I think even better than showing Denzel Washington kicking all this ass was to not show it, to have most of it in the shadows. But then, yeah, Brian, absolutely. The fact that it wasn't just like one-on-one video game fighting, the fact that it, he was, it did seem like he was taking on, like, I don't remember how many guys, like four or five, like all at once. It was very cool. And I did not, I did not feel like I marked out at the time when I watched it. But then like a couple days after I watched it, I was thinking about this scene, this fight scene. And yeah. it made me smile and kind of like nod my head a little bit. And I was like, man, if I'm this into this scene... A couple of days later, I'm going to go ahead and say it's a markout moment for me because I thought this fight was really cool. And just, you know, we talk a lot about character intros and sure we've already been introduced to Eli as like a scavenger and a survivor, but now we're seeing him as like an action hero. And so, yes, like the way when we first see Calm, Tony Job burst into action and the protector by like launching into the screen, knees first. It's the same kind of thing. Like we're now we're seeing, you know, Denzel Washington as Eli kick ass, a great intro uh, for him. Yeah, I do think that this moment, this quick action set piece is kind of what stuck with me. Because I would, like I said, the times I would rewatch this movie were years in between. And I think this is what stuck with me as one of those moments of like, ah, yeah, you do like that movie. You should. It's been a while. Let's let's pop that back on or whatever. And I do. Another thing I meant to say was I feel like that moment when he slices that dude's hand off 
in a nanosecond. I feel like that was almost like a punchline. And the movie beforehand was almost like this like 12 minute setup because it is so quiet. And he only like whispers a line once to like a mouse. And like there's been it's been so everything's been like, you know, bleak, but otherwise like soft and quiet and everything. And then you finally have this thing that is like, this is actually who this guy is. And it is such a like kind of payoff in that moment that I think that's why it sticks the way it does for me, at least. I, I, I'm going to agree with you and, and give you credit on two points. One, you're absolutely right about that because in the moments leading up or in the, in the scenes leading up to this moment, we see that Eli doesn't have much, you know, he's, scra- he's scavenging for shoes. He has an iPod that he has, has to carry a battery around for. I certainly wasn't expecting him to have a machete. And I certainly didn't know where on his person he was hiding it. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think that setup did did that punchline some justice. So uh, so there's that there. You said something a few minutes ago that did not click with me while I was watching the movie, but right now it unlocks a whole lot for me. And that is by stepping under the overpass, by cloaking the fight in shadows. I think you said something to the effect of it evens the playing field. Now we're gonna learn something about Eli later on in the movie that's gonna be kind of spoilery, but. Credit to the movie for for giving you that little bit of, you know, for those film literate people who could have picked up on on a clue like that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It does signify that, you know, these people are fighting on his level by not really seeing what they're doing. But how would a man with 100% vision, how would being in darkness would be, uh, how would that be bringing people to his level? Interesting, interesting, interesting. But Mac and Brian, after Eli makes the heroic choice to not save a couple from violent bandits... Eli makes it to a town pretty much run by book collector and religious enthusiast Carnegie, played by Gary Oldman. After Eli gets his battery recharged by the engineer, inexplicably played by Tom Waits, he goes to a nearby bar and is surrounded by Carnegie's men, led by the underused Red Ridge, played by Punch Mountain's guardian angel, Ray Stevenson. Rest in Punisher, King. Red Ridge invites Eli to meet with Carnegie, and Eli does. All right, y'all, let's talk about it. The visuals of this movie. Mm-hmm. This movie is not just, like, saturated. It's kind of fucked with in a way. Because at it, some moments, yes. um, it's almost like all the colors have been stripped away. And then at other moments, there's, like, weird spot colors where, like, all the colors have been turned way down, except, like, the yellows are up or something. But overall, what do you think about the visual direction for this movie? Is it working for you? I think I get what they're going for. But I think ultimately it's confusing and distracting for me. Like, you know, a movie that kind of is presented or could easily easily feel like a sort of road warrior kind of movie ends up looking like a Zack Snyder movie. Like everything feels painted on to the screen. You never once are watching it and think, I bet that's a real place. I bet that's a real location. I bet this is it. It all feels built and like I said, like painted. So yeah, it, it does kind of distract me o- overall. I, I agree with you to an extent. I think it works just because of the of the backstory of the nuclear war. You know, it, the, the sun is very bright here. In a lot of ways, I think this movie delivers on the potential of something like Pitch Black, where Pitch Black was sort of that same way. You know, it was very bright outside. It was very saturated. But that one felt like they were just on location shooting a movie. This one at least feels... A little more like they had an idea of what the desolate wasteland looks like, what the cobbled together towns look like. I, I was I was into this. And again, I agree with both of you. David, I, I agree with you. I think it does work and I think it does get that idea across. But yeah, Brian, at the same time, it was definitely distracting uh, here and there. It's like they were shooting to make it look cool where they should have been aiming to make it look cool and beautiful, which you have 
some of those kind of desolate, you know, uh, photography and like The Road Warrior or other movies of the sort. Uh, the Road, oh, a lot of road movies. To everyone's credit, one thing that does kind of take me out of it, we mentioned the KFC wet nap uh, a moment ago. There is still some inexplicable product placement in this movie. Like, again, the apocalypse, you know, the war or whatever happened 30 years ago. But I guess this bush beer truck was pretty well maintained. This, there's a bush beer semi that's just, you know, parked off on the side of the road. You can still tell it had beer in it at some point. And at, at another time when they get to the, to the city, when Eli gets to the, to the makeshift town, they still have a J Crew there. I can't imagine it's still being stocked or inventoried, but like they couldn't have taken that sign down by now. Let's jump in real quick and talk about both those things because this town that it gets to, it's kind of like laid out like a main street, right? There's like one drag of shops, but there's no small town where their fucking main street has a J Crew, a coffee bean, and a Puma, <laughs> which makes me think like, oh shit, this like old west style town, this is the remains of an outlet mall. Like that is where they set up shop here. So like the old timey like movie theater they were in, like, was that even a movie theater or was it like, a, oh, the Orpheum Kids Clothing Store? I don't know. But but yeah, product placement, I don't even know. I mean, I, I can understand Bush being putting their product in there because I can imagine watching Book of Eli and being like, ah, this sun-baked land is so parched. Oh, an ice cold Bush beer. That sounds so good right now. <laughs> but I don't think anyone's seen that Puma outlet and be like, yeah, I want to lace up some Pumas. This is great. This absolutely felt like, to me, you know, if our listeners are familiar with Austin, this feels like the domain. This feels like, you know, the sort of outward facing storefronts. You know, it, it feels like this little main street. It's got a lot of mixed use properties. So next time you're at the domain, just think, man, what if this was ravaged by war? But as Eli is traveling through uh, this video game background, he comes across some people, like a couple, being uh, beaten up by some marauders here. And more than beaten up, David, uh, here's another... Beyond whistle warning, here's a trigger warning, because there is a, a scene of sexual assault. Yeah, there's some brutality here. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of, it's two steps forward, two steps back with Eli in the early parts of this movie. You know, a moment ago, we saw him kicking ass in a fight with marauders. We saw him being kind to the lady who was set up as bait. But then a few moments later, we see him just being an onlooker. He, you know, he's he's well hidden. He sees this as it unfolds. He sees the this couple walking down the street, this gang of motorcycle toughs comes up to them and he's telling himself not to get involved. He has to just stay on your mission. Just keep going. Don't get involved. And like, you know, this is a movie and we do have to follow this person for a couple of hours. It would have been nice to have something else to remind us that we're rooting for him. You know, I get that he doesn't want to get involved. That's how you stay alive in the apocalypse. You don't stick your neck out when you don't need to. But at the same time, knowing what we do about the movie, knowing he is a man on a mission, as we find out later on in the movie, he might be, you know, kind of touched. You know, he might be, you know, guided by an otherworldly being. It would have been nice to see him test that out and just know that, like, he is a man on a quest. You know, nothing will get in the way of that quest, no matter what peril he he finds himself involved in. Like, I, I think that would have been a nice touch. It, it left me feeling a little gross about the movie that was presented. Yeah, it's definitely a conflicting, confusing moment because he's crouched down. He's literally like on looking. He's on this overpass looking down at this whole thing unfold. And he does just have to like steal himself. Just be like stay on the path. I think is what he's saying. Like stay on the path. This isn't about you. Stay on the path. But then anytime anything steps in his way, it's chop, chop, chop. I will... Sl sl slaughter and slit everything in front of me so it's like you can't extend that 
to when that's happening to something a few feet away from you, that's no, that's when you've got to really just knuckle down and stay on the path. Yeah, that does bother me. And it does feel uh, like a perspective maybe from who wrote this movie. It does feel a little gross where it's like, I will give money to a church. But then someone asks, like, do you have a dollar? And you're like, I've got to get to work right now. It's a little bit of, or a lot, a bit of that. Yeah, that selective altruism. Yeah. Yeah, if this scene had happened before the scene where he effortlessly mows down six dudes, maybe it would feel different. Yes. But the idea that like, he's like, oh, I shouldn't, I want to help this person so bad, but I, I can't risk it. Uh, it's like, dude, is it a risk? Uh, you're, you're a human murder machine. I bet you could take him. But I will say this, at least he's like, oh, I want to help so bad, but I shouldn't, which is a lot better than Mad Max and the Road Warrior. Because he sees somebody getting sexual assaulted and he's like, yeah, times are tough. (laughs) (laughs) He sees fakes wanting to help. But Eli's going to make it to town. He's going to get the lay of the land. He's going to stop off at an electronic shop. I guess it's an old radio shack. It's run by Tom Waits. I was happy to see that he wasn't in this very much. But I'll tell you who I wanted to see more of in this movie. That's Ray Stevenson as Redridge. When I first saw him on the screen, I got so excited, I, you know, because this is our third movie with Ray Stevenson. Secures his his place on the uh, in the video store if we want later on. <laughs> Ray Stevenson is also in this section. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, in, in his previous two efforts on the mountain, he's been engaging, at least. He's been very exciting and very fun to watch. So I was excited to have this movie include the Ray Stevenson element. He's a waste in this movie. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, he was. I I liked him a lot in this. Just real quick, it, I thought it was really funny when uh, when Eli first arrives in town and he's just walking down the street. There are so they cut to so many people doing so many double takes and just staring him down. Where it, it, to me, it it looked like the, all these people were looking at him, thinking, "Is that Denzel Washington?" <laughs> like they look starstruck by this guy and he's just there's so many people i don't know why he stands out but he sure does but this town just sucks it is just pathetic like look we uh i say we uh, at this point in the book of eli humanity has just as many uh resources as the people in the old west had i mean i guess our crops don't grow anymore okay that's a setback but at the same time, your shit's just all over the floor of you know, the street. It's disgusting. You know, fix these buildings. Paint something. Come on. Have some pride in your disgusting wasteland. It's gross. Yeah, there are people just like sleeping in the stair, like in doorways and stuff. It's like, this is your town. Like, yeah, move into the Puma store. What are you doing? All the pillow top mattresses were enraptured. Come on. But yes, Eli goes in the electronic store. The Tom Waits proprietor of the electronic store, they call him the engineer, he pulls a gun on Eli and Eli whoop, snatches a gun right away from him, which that's good hand-eye coordination right there. Hand-eye coordination. It'd be a surprise if this man's vision wasn't excellent because the hand-eye coordination, again, is great. But then he's, you know, Eli's nice. He gives Tom Waits his gun back. And then Tom Waits is like, I got to check your hands. And he's got to check Eli's hands for like steadiness, which is interesting. What's up with this apocalypse? And when Eli gives Tom Waits his battery and he's like, hey, could you recharge this portable battery, which I guess is what Eli was using to recharge his iPod. Waits goes, I haven't seen one of these since the 90s, which, okay, that's interesting. You know, because trying to get like a timeline, like, when is this supposed to be? And this is like 30 years after a collapse, but this 60-year-old dude, I, don't, I mean, Tom Waits, he might be 48, but he looks like he's in his 60s. The fact that he remembers the 90s, so when the, this apocalyptic event happened, it's not too far away from like where we are now or something like that. 
this isn't um, 2080, right? It, it's it, we're not that far in the future. Yeah, the timeline of it all is confusing. It's really like they try to do that thing that they'll do in like time travel movies where you know you like reference like a bicycle and everyone's like what's a bicycle and like they do that in this movie where people you know we'll get to it later but maybe someone references like a television and someone's like what it, huh, what but then there's still like yeah an ipod that you can recognize on site so it is a weird like where does this all lay out timeline wise it, it is a little muddled there's so much inconsistency, you almost get the sense that one of the weapons of the war was like a mind-erasing device. Because there's so many moments in this movie where it's like, tell me about back then. It's like, oh, I can barely remember back then. It's like, you would have been 20. Are you really having a hard time remembering something from when you were 20? Because probably the last thing you remember before it all went to shit, I would be holding on to that memory like a secret. Yeah, your most vivid final moments of normalcy? Absolutely. Then we meet the man who's in charge of this shitty town. It's Gary Oldman, and he's playing a dude named uh, Carnegie, right? Not Carnegie. I'll say Carnegie. It's just, it's just easier for me to say. I don't, yeah. And how are we introduced to this dude? He's kicking back at his office in the Orpheum Theater, and he's reading a book about Mussolini, which we find out later he's like trying to probably study it. And in comes a Marauder gang uh, led by, uh, oh, is that Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers? No, it's a fake Flea. And they're like, hey, we got a bunch of books for you, man. I guarantee you the book you're looking for is in one of these. And I don't know if this is supposed to be hilarious, but one of the books was The Da Vinci Code, which was probably every fucking place when this movie came out. Who would be the equivalent of that today? What is like a, a book that is everywhere? I'm glad my mom died by Jeanette McCurdy, if that had fallen out of there. That's a good book. But Carnegie's like, nah, this is not the book I'm looking for. Duh. He's like, oh, we, we found some shampoo. And he's like, yes, shampoo. This is good. Tell you what, you dumb marauders, go down and, and get yourself blind drunk. Uh, it's on the house and Ray Stevenson comes up, Red Ridge, and he's like, why are you sending these dudes out to find a book they can't even read? Oh, the apocalypse. It doesn't get better, guys. This was I, literally right before, a minute before Gary Oldman got on screen, I was writing like, where is Gary Oldman? Like, it, I felt like it took so long, which it really was like 24 minutes in is when Gary Oldman shows up. But that is a thing with this movie, like cameras move so slowly there's so many moments of quiet that it is like theory of relativity in like how slowly this movie feels versus even just how it's actually moving so that was like my first like punch up was like just speed things up a little bit in addition to that you hit on a, on an interesting point where like the runtime in this movie is a couple minutes under two hours but maybe three things happen in this movie. Like it's there's not a lot going on in this movie, but it sure does make a meal out of everything that this movie covers. Everything. They really I almost wrote that down. Like I feel like the camera just makes a meal out of every time it has to move. It really I was thinking about how it's almost the reverse of, you know, when you guys talked about Terminator 2, I went back and watched it. And that's a movie that's over two hours i think it's like almost 220 and that movie is like a 220 movie that feels like it takes 75 minutes and this movie is one that's just shy of two and it feels like it's 245 and it's only because they really take so much time in all these little moments that yeah i was just just ready for like things to kind of get kicking but yeah i love gary oldman i was curious about what you guys think of his accent in this movie <laughs> that he almost doesn't have until like he wants to really hit a certain void. 
Oh, oh, we're gonna we're gonna play some audio coming up here in a little bit, but I'll I'll tip my hand. It's it's almost as though they wanted to hire Robert De Niro's character in Cape Fear specifically. They wanted to hire Max Cady to be the bad guy of this movie. They're like, well, let's get an actual actor. We just he's a fictional character. I don't even know why we're pursuing him. Oh, and also, real two things in this very you know when we first meet Gary Oldman's character uh, Carnegie, and they bring him all those books. That was the first moment I had where it's like, what's going on with this timeline where we don't know what certain things are, but O Magazine is still uh, in the mix. (laughs) Yeah. The crazy thing is that was a current issue. If you read the cover, it was like uh, Oprah's tips on surviving the apocalypse. Eight people I love to taste. It was uh, was, was weird. And then when he's, you know, he's disgusted by this uh, display of uh, books and he's like, oh, also... We got this shampoo. It's not just, hey, go down there, get blind drunk. His first thing, he's so happy. And he says, get some pussy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is, what a reward. What a, what, what is this? And also, he's just at the bar. He did not go get that. But that's, you know, you have to imagine that's the exchange rate in this society where you bring me books, you can get drunk. You bring me cleaning products. Okay, you can get laid. But I almost wish he was enthusiastic. It's like, pussy? Yeah! Like, like mom's making stovetop or something. Yeah, they really... Or as many decades into this apocalypse as everyone is, they really are clinging to the dream of cleanliness. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I, even, I wrote down that KFC wet naps are the John Wick gold coins of this universe because he pays for his uh, re- battery recharge with a KFC wet nap. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's like oh, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. Like I don't want any of that. Like I've got this wet nap. Like you're my <laughs> best friend. Get in here. All right. Yeah, and, and even though Gary Oldman is a big name actor, uh, look, if you need a a criminal mastermind who runs their business of operations out of uh, what essentially is a saloon. You're telling me Ian McShane wasn't available for this uh, weird wasteworld version of Al Swearingen uh, coming in and uh, <laughs> excellent work, boys. Get yourself some pussy. Like the way he would say it. Just <laughs> talk about making a meal out of a, of a line and also whatever. But his battery's not going to be fully charged for a minute. So Eli, in order to kill some time, walks over to the Orpheum to catch a drink. But here's the problem with this town. They don't take too kindly to outsiders. And at some point, Eli makes a cat go meow. And then in a very weird turn of events, the fake flea marauder's like, hey, man, that was my cat you fucking scared, which is like, what a weird intro line to a fight. (laughs) Denzel Washington, you know, he's humble. Eli, he doesn't want to fight. So he's like, I'm sorry, please just leave me alone. And fake flea does not take a hint. And Eli is forced to smash fake flea's face right into the bar. This was a JFC moment for me. Because again, the Foley department did not have to go this hard. I feel like I heard every tooth smash out of this guy's face. Which then, because when they pull his face back up, he's got like a bloody nose. It's like, wait, where was this? What? What was the extra sound effects for? Because I thought this guy was going to have like a wet, bloody sucking hole in the middle of his face. But here's the thing. Even though Fake Flea is like beaten stupid and he's like, hey man, everything's cool. The other Marauders, they don't take too kindly to people that smash their friends' faces after scaring their cat. And so it looks like it's time for another action set piece, which we're going to call Bar Brawl at the end of the world. I'm torn about this one because on the one hand, credit where credit's due, the fight choreography in this is decent, you know, especially for Denzel Washington being not particularly an action guy. He's not the perfect weapon, but he gets the job done. He sells this fight very well. With that said, I don't really remember a ton about it. Like, there's nothing that stands out like, oh my God, this, you know, kick or this punch or this, you know, this death or anything like that. 
So again, you know, going back to what we said about the first fight, this really is just advancing the plot. It's it's just letting you know, and then Eli gets into a fight. We don't linger on it too much. We don't make that the centerpiece of the movie or anything like that. It's not a showcase. It's just to tell you that Eli gets no fight. Yeah, this is a movie that no matter the moment on screen, they want it. They, I think they want it to be just a bare bones moment where, yeah, he's going to get in a fight. He's going to handle himself around five to a, you know, a dozen people, but we're not going to like really get into the details and the nuance of each moment. You're just going to see this thing kind of play out and 15 seconds later, like it'll have been resolved or whatever. That scene especially, that fight is such a blur. But the very first guy that comes in, you know, to take him on, you almost don't even notice it because there's just such a swarm around it. But that dude is just full on decapitated. <laughs> a, a head just goes flying and you see it just bounce across the floor and it is not telegraphed. It is not focused on. It's just that's one of the things that happened in these next five seconds. And so, yeah, it's like you're saying, yeah, nothing's ever going to really be focused on too much. This is just, this is what happened right now. Well, the moment of the fight that stuck with me was was the very end because Eli is like murdering all these dudes and he's about to kill like the last one. But the bar's bar back, Mila Kunis, playing the character uh, Solara, Solara? Solara. As, as Eli's about to deliver a, his final killing blow, she comes in and she's like, don't stop, what? Stop it. And then he does stop. But what he stops is he's holding a fucking axe and he's about to bury an axe in some guy's head. So the fact yeah. she's like, stop. And he's like, oh, oh, uh, this is, a, I was just about to axe a dude. Like, you know, this, it was such like a, it wasn't like I'm about to shoot you or punch you. It was about like, you're about to axe murder someone. Damn. So it was a pretty intense fight. And the tone in her voice and the look on her face isn't just like, what think of these are human beings with souls and what are you doing this carnage she's looking at him like this is my husband who thinks he can still do a keg stand and what are you thinking stop it please yeah it's really just that she's just exasperated more than horrified or disgusted yeah i noticed that too that was a strange way to break quote unquote break up this fight that there's one less slaughter to happen yeah, she's like, don't, you're being ridiculous right now. You're causing a scene. You're embarrassing us right now. I do want to go back and amend something. The more we talk about it, the more the more I realize maybe it wasn't the fight that was unmemorable. I think for me, knowing that Gary Oldman and Ray Stevenson are upstairs, this entire fight is a countdown to when they show up. You know, again, I've said it and I'll continue to say it throughout this episode. Ray Stevenson was underused in this movie. I sure would have liked to have seen him establish himself as a big bad as a mid-level boss in this moment but he's just kind of he goes down there and invites eli to dinner <laughs> yeah he that character it's like ray stevenson was the like collateral damage of them not knowing what to do with that character like they wanted a cool badass like second in command and they didn't know what to do with that or what to do with the evolution of that character as the movie progressed and he was just like the like victim of of all that kind of like indecision. I felt like, yeah, it was a shame because every time you see him on screen, it's you really enjoy those moments, but they don't know what to do with it. I feel like he gives off the feeling of a lit fuse in this movie where it's like, when is he going to blow? And he never blows. But after the fight, Red Ridge and the other Carnegie gang members 
uh, surround Eli at gunpoint, and they invite him up to Carnegie's office. Oh, my gosh. Eli and Carnegie light up the screen with their chemistry as Carnegie extends an invitation to Eli to join the Carnegie gang. Eli is invited to spend the night in Deadwood and think it over. And to help seal the deal, Carnegie sends food and water delivered by Carnegie's blind girlfriend, Claudia, played by Jennifer Beals. And then delivers Claudia's daughter, Solara, played by Mila Kunis, the same year as Black Swan. Eli rejects her feminine charms, instead offering to share his food and water and let her sleep on the floor. Eli also teaches Solara how to pray, which gets her in trouble with Carnegie the next morning. So first things first, very cool to see Denzel and Gary Oldman on the screen together. Like, this was... Maybe not seeing De Niro and Pacino in Heat, but maybe seeing De Niro and Pacino in like Righteous Kill, where it's just like, oh, cool. But, uh, you know, it, it felt a little wasted in this movie, but God damn it, two great actors going to town. I liked it. Yeah, and two actors that like really grab your attention in such different ways. Denzel's playing it so cool. And Gary Oldman is such like a theater guy, I feel like. Like he's always trying to play with maybe the exception of like Commissioner Gordon. I feel like he's always playing to like the back row. I, I yeah, it's so fun to watch. And maybe, yeah, you'd want to see it again in a different movie. Yeah, I do feel like every line uh, of Gary Oldman, he probably delivered a take where he spins uh, completely in a circle, you know, just like, <laughs> whoop, in my town, 360 degrees. But yes, Carnegie's, his old lady is uh, the ageless uh, Jennifer Beals and her daughter is played by Mila Kunis, Solara. So Carnegie sends Claudia in to deliver, you know, some decent grub to Eli. And, and Carnegie thinks like, oh, he'll, once he tastes his grub, he'll be in. And Claudia's like, no, I get a vibe from him. He doesn't need you. And he's like, okay, in that case, uh, I'm going to pimp out your daughter, which, man, nothing um, gets you on a lady's bad side, right? By pimping out her daughter. <laughs> oh, women, they're so demanding. <laughs> they're like, oh, listen to me. Pay attention to my feelings. Don't pimp out my daughter. But uh, he does... However, Eli is a class act. He, he's not going to be a party to this uh, coerced sex game here. But instead, he's going to break bread with uh, Solara and then talk about some stuff. Yeah, this is another one of those moments, you know, uh, I've, I've alluded to the mind erasing war. But like they're treating Eli as though he's from another planet. Like they have no point of reference to prayer or, or you know, the ritual uh, of dinner time. Like, it's one of those things, you know, talking about this movie as though it were a faith-based movie. I don't know if you guys have seen a lot of Christian movies or anything like that. I recently watched God's Not Dead. And it's one of those movies that kind of, it's like they took the villain and wrote the movie backwards from that. Where it's like, okay, how do we make ourselves the hero of this movie? It's going to have to be up against a guy who thinks this way. And it's like, this movie wants... Eli to be the hero because he's carrying the Bible, because, I mean, spoiler alert, because he's carrying this very important book. So what does a world look like where it's him against the world? Does that, does that make sense? Am I, I feel like I'm being clumsy with how I'm explaining this. I feel like I know exactly what you mean. Like, it reminds me of like, if like a Christian college said, you know, this year we're not going to do an Easter pageant. We want you guys to write something really modern and, uh, you know, really hip, maybe even a little gritty, because, you know, <laughs> the Bible, there's some crazy stuff in there. <laughs> you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Oh, you mean the Bible? So <laughs> I feel like it's the Christian movie that's going to not pull any punches, and but also be like, everyone's so mean to us. Like, we are all martyrs. God, I didn't even think about that. Oh, the way that the fucking, you know, right wing uh, Christians love to, like, martyr themselves. Like, oh, everyone's out mm -hmm. to get, oh, there's this war on Christianity. 
It's just like, shut the fuck up. Ah, this movie definitely doesn't not hurt them. <laughs> so that sucks a little. Yeah, it's been a big thing. Like, And that I wasn't... I, I've watched this movie, like I said, a, two or three times over the years. And I knew what the quote-unquote like twists, endings, or reveals were. But I never really picked up until this time everything in between. And uh, yeah, it really hit me over the head big time of just like the perspective that this movie is putting out there or, or, or approaching this story from. And soon after this moment, it, it kind of starts to really snowball and like show show itself a bit more. But yeah, it, it, it's very interesting. You're right. This was my first eye rolling moment in that regard. I, I tried not to have too many of them in this movie, but my understanding of faith and religion is that it's resilient. I don't think people would have forgotten how to pray. I yes. think there might be, you know, I kind of wish this movie had explored pockets of people throughout this desolate wasteland who are still holding on to it. They just don't know, you know, they know the melody, they just don't know the words, that kind of thing. And Eli's there to provide them with the words. But for Carnegie to hear Solar praying, he'd be like, where did you get that from? You know, that's that was a, a bit too much for me. David it's so funny. I, this is the second time we've been really on the same page because it was around that moment, like the next morning at the breakfast table or whatever. You know, he's like, where did you learn that? What's going on? And they start talking about the book. And he had a book. What kind of book? And like, I don't know. Actually, Brian, we're going to hear the audio of what Gary Oldman says here. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. He was reading. <sighs> what kind of book was he reading? I don't know. I don't know. An old leather one. And? Show me. And after he says that, uh, Mila Kunis makes a little T with her fingers to show that on the book there was a little cross. And real quick, Brian, before you get to your point, this is one of those things where it's like, look, if you have Gary Oldman in a movie, you have to have him say the line and then repeat the line much angrier, right? <laughs> get everyone. What? Everyone. Like you have to have, that's like, you need that out of old man. You need that out of Gary old man. And when she made that cross with her fingers, that's when I, in my notes, drew eyes rolling. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, to jump back, I said something five minutes ago about how Christians love to admire themselves. You might be like, well, man, cause know what Jesus did. Yeah. Jesus was nailed to a cross. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's pretty harsh. Right wing conservatives now are like, oh, the, the Walmart group said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas to me. Ugh, stab me in the heart, Roman soldiers. Like, it's not the fucking same. But yeah, before they eat in Eli's like jail cell slash locked hotel room, whatever you want to call it, uh, he and Solara eat a meal together. And before they eat, they pray. And at this moment, I honestly kind of got religion in a, in a little bit. Not like I received it personally, mm -hmm. but I understood it. Because at that moment, if I was Solar, I'd be like, wait, hold on. There's a, a crazy sky being who like loves me. And when I die, things will be better. Yeah, I'm on board with this because my life sucks. <laughs> but I guess praying was so awesome. that The next day when she goes back to have breakfast with her mom and Carnegie, she's like, hey, mom, let's pray real quick. Like she's just so excited to pray again. Which again, look, prayer's not that fun, y'all. <laughs> She's instantly a student that just came back from like studying abroad, who's just like, here's how you actually do breakfast. Here's how we do meals. Like, let me take your hand and let me fumble through this. What do you guys think of Mila Kunis in this? Because I, I have a couple things, like they make her so 
innocently naive that it almost there are moments like the way she is introduced into Denzel's room. Like if you eliminated that and a very uh, disturbing scene later, if you cut those out of the movie, it would feel like, oh, this was originally going to be a character that was supposed to be like eight years old. She doesn't even seem to understand the world that she's been raised in. Like she seems so clueless to everything around her. Everyone in this movie feels like they've been through it and they're just trying to get by. And when you first see her walk out behind the bar in that very first moment, she instantly looks like she came like out of a time machine from 30 years ago before everything hit the fan. Like she is stylish and clean and wearing fashionable clothes that fit. And there's nothing about her that makes it look like she lives in this world. So everything about how they present her and how they wrote her, it it all feels like a character that was supposed to be in a, in a different movie in, in a way. I think you're absolutely right. I think with the exception of using her to try and persuade Eli and, and there's a moment coming up later in the movie, I think those aside, this really could have been like Hit Girl or something, you know, just someone who grows up to be a tougher than leather hard ass and we're seeing that origin story this really should have been like a 10 year old working behind the bar and you're like what's a 10 year old working doing working behind the bar this is a crazy apocalypse but but i think they had to age her up to make some scenes work which they could have easily cut out of the movie yeah i i read that originally they were offering the role to Kristen stewart who couldn't do it because of twilight i think that she was currently filming a twilight movie but it feels like they found that out like the day they were going to shoot that character's first scene and got Mila like she just like walked out. And I, I don't dislike her as a actor or whatever, but it, it just felt like there was they didn't prepare that character the way everyone else in the movie was to fit that world. Yeah, no, you absolutely read my mind. I was thinking along the lines of Kristen Stewart in Panic hmm. Room. That's sort of like preteen, too cool, but still vulnerable, like. That would have been right at home in this movie. Yeah. Um, it, it's a shame. It's a shame that they no no knock on Mila Kunis. You know everybody's mm-hmm. got to eat, and I think she did a decent job in this movie. But it could have been somebody else. It probably should have been somebody else. Yeah. So I guess Mila Kunis got the role because Kristen Stewart turned it down, and they only offered it to Kristen Stewart because I must have been turned down by a, a wooden statue of a woman. I imagine <laughs> is who else was probably in line for that. But you mentioned the apocalypse. Let's talk about this apocalypse because during the dinner scene. You get a couple of details, like Denzel Washington references the war and the flash, meaning like a big light in the sky kind of thing. And it's funny because when this movie started, I was watching my feral wife. She was like, oh, is this post-apocalyptic? And I was like, here's the thing. I don't know. And the answer is yes. I guess this movie does take place after an apocalyptic event. But now with these kind of movies, you don't need apocalyptic events anymore because the way that we are currently living which is in a very unsustainable way. This feels like, yeah, it could go this direction. Like, really, this could be the move. You know what I mean? Like, it's it very easily like, oh, I don't even need a giant religion war or a virus. Things could just slowly slip down to, or keep sliding to where, you know, when I go to Walmart, I also eat a dude's brain, right? It just, that's kind of how we're living now. And so the fact that like, oh, there was a, a religion war, like, that's quaint. That's cute. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that's how it happens. <laughs> Not just the slow <laughs> decline to cannibalism. <laughs> There absolutely could have been like a village element to this where it's like, oh, does this take place in the future? It's like, no, present day Cedar Rapids, Iowa. But after Carnegie finds out that prayer be happening in that room, he's like, oh, shit, Eli's got a book. He's got the Bible. And they rush to the room. But Magic Man Eli has managed to escape this room somehow 
you know, because he's Batman, I guess. Even though there was a guard <laughs> stationed out front, he didn't see anything. How did how did he get out? But Red Ridge, again, played by Ray Stevenson, not too happy with the sentry posted outside of Eli's room. Not too happy, and he lets the guard know it immediately. He doesn't even give the guard a moment to explain before he shoots him in the face, kills him dead. I laughed out loud at this moment. This was what I wanted out of Red Ridge. I wanted just, I have no time for your tomfoolery. Like, you had a job, you didn't do the job, and now I will kill you. I, I laughed very heartily. But you think that Eli would be like, man, I got to get the fuck out of this town. I'm definitely not going to waste time jawing with the engineer. That's exactly what he does. And he tries to skip town eventually, but... But he is caught by Carnegie and his men, and Carnegie reveals his motivations for wanting Eli's Bible. Eli shoots his way out of town and also manages to dodge, absorb, avoid Redridge's bullets. Solara catches up to Eli and offers to show Eli the underground spring where Carnegie gets the town's water, and Eli thanks Solara by ditching her and leaving her all alone. Solara doesn't fare well out by herself, so Eli returns to rescue her from danger. Meanwhile, the wounded Carnegie orders Redridge to assemble a posse to capture Eli and his good book. Hmm. So, okay, this is going to be the part, you know, the, the finger T aside, this is where we establish that Eli is carrying a Bible. And I think we've already touched on this, but I, I do have a question for the panel. What is this movie's takeaway regarding the Bible? Because I'll, I'll answer this question with, with my own answer first. Because, like, does this movie want us to repeat terrible history where it's like, you've got this owner of the town, you know, he's clearly a bad guy, but he needs that Bible in order to, to spread the word to the people so that the people have something to believe in so that they can see him as a leader. So are we really just repeating ourselves with <laughs> with the Bible? Like, is, is the Bible's destiny to just create or to just expose good and evil in equal measure throughout eternity? I don't know what it is. It's muddy, maybe. I think that is the ultimate question is like, what is the message here? Because, I, and I, I did leave this viewing wondering, like, I, I'm genuinely curious, like, what do Christians think of this movie? Because on the one hand, you have like one of the coolest actors in American movie history, like protecting the Bible. And on the other hand, everyone is acknowledging that this is like a dangerous thing that is used to control people. And as it's revealed shortly later in this movie is maybe even the reason this war happened was because of this book, which is why uh, there are really many left. And so, yeah, it is just like, how are you supposed to feel about all of this? And I guess ultimately it's supposed to be, if you are into all of this, you think this is good and there's just so much bad that wants this good for themselves. It's muddy at best and uh, was something that was really made it challenging to, to watch this movie. Look, there's a lot of you know Christian churches in the South that where people are, are doing good work, right? Like they're trying to, you know, uh, help the poor. They're fighting for civil rights. They are, you know, welcoming to LGBTQ members. Great. I'm not talking about y'all. Y'all just keep keep doing good work. Uh, but the shitty Christian nationalists in this country, they, of course, will be like, oh, this movie's awesome, pro-Bible, because they don't give a shit about hypocrisy. Like this sort of, uh, what is it called? The Like the prosperity gospel, this kind of thing where you're like, if you're rich, like God has blessed you. Like, oh, uh. Yeah, our, our family's been really blessed. Uh, each of our children has a car, even our eight-year-old. Like, we went ahead and bought him his first Rolls, <laughs> even though he can't drive it, et cetera. Because I did not think much of Gary Oldman's speech first time I saw it. At least I didn't really remember it. 
but this time I I thought I was good. Basically, he's like saying they're like, yeah, he he's, it's a very cynical speech, but he's not wrong about religion. Like the way that religion and uh, Jesus, uh, be he real or be he fake, his teachings are used to like justify anything. Like just the way it could be the message of like helping thy neighbor can be twisted any which way. And the, the fact that Gary Oldman's like, no, this Bible, I've seen its effect on people growing up. I grew up around it. I know how it could be used to control people. Yeah, it's a very cynical speech, but he's like not wrong about religion. So I think if you're watching this movie and you're a Christian, it's like both sides are kind of laid out for you there. Like there's the the good, uh, which is, you know, faith. And then there's the bad, which is honestly probably religion. And I think though, however, if you're like a, you know, shitty Christian, if you're one of the righteous gemstones, you're watching this thing and you're like, uh, yeah, man, Gary Oldman doesn't get it, even though he is you. Like you, he's the fucking <laughs> mirror that you just don't want to look at. Now, that being said, there's some stuff with Denzel Washington character later when he's like, Oh, uh, there's a voice that spoke to me and like, it's showing me these things where you're like, uh, okay, this movie's definitely leaning harder into like, you know, pro-Christianity than Gary Oldman's speech might make you think. But, uh, this scene I thought was effective because yeah, again, a cynical, but true take on religion. Yeah. Cause there's a couple Gary Oldman moments, the, when he, they've kind of got Denzel surrounded outside, like kind of in on the main street. I love basically everything Gary Ullman, that everything that comes out of his mouth and that it is one of his most, I think like he's really tapping into like sinister TV preacher guy. Like there was a moment I wrote down just cause I loved how he hit these words where he's like, it's meant to be shared. It's me- meant to be spread. Like, I feel like it's the most he's, or one of the times he's most really leaning into like who his character is. And then as Denzel just is like, I just got to keep walking. And he just keeps walking. I, uh, and Gary Oldman is like, I love this guy. I love this guy. I, this guy's awesome. I love this guy. And then he turns to Ray Stevenson and he says, will you kill him, please? <laughs> I just even adding please. I was like, ah, Gary Oldman, this is fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm torn. You know, you, you're making excellent points, but I think I would have appreciated this movie more if it did have more of a cynical take on religion as opposed to what I think is more of a pro-Christianity message. Because if this movie were cynical, if this movie were aware of what it's doing with the Gary Oldman character, there's something to that where he was like, oh yeah, of course I know that the Bible is bad if it falls in the wrong hands, but I'm not the wrong hands. I, you know, I mean to, to lead these people. Like that's kind of at the heart of every religious leader these days, really. So, like, there's something very biting about that. There's something that kind of cuts to the core. But if this movie is a pro-faith movie, then it's just painting Gary Oldman as the bad guy. Boo, he's wearing all black, and here comes Denzel, yay. Yeah, I think at the core of it, the biggest issue I have with the movie is it's so literal when there could be metaphor in there where after you see the movie, you go like, oh, you know, like, the thing about it is, like, Gary Oldman, like, he wants that Bible but he doesn't say it, but he considers it a weapon as opposed to him. He's like, it's a weapon. And it's so it's like local community theater that just <laughs> happened to cast grade A actors to deliver these lines. See, I think this is a pro-faith movie. I do not think this is necessarily a pro-religion movie, uh, but I, I think there's a lot of people that'll be like, well, what's the difference? Uh, so uh, there you go. But I mean, I don't know. I haven't read what the Hughes brothers we're trying to do with this, but like you said, Brian, there's not a lot of subtlety in this thing. So 
I think we all know what they're trying to do with it. But yes, Carnegie's like, shoot this dude. And I guess it's time for another action set piece, Main Street Shootout. And in this shootout, Eli somehow does not get shot, even though Red Ridge has two like real clean, like easy looks at him. And it looks like Eli gets tagged a couple times. I mean, I'll, I'll give the, you know, you mentioned it, David, the, the bullets get absorbed. I, I think maybe they like just went through his clothes, like he shot through his like top of his backpack or something. But it does sure look like at some point he gets shot and then turns around and doesn't feel it. Well, one thing I had made note of during the shootout is how long it takes for Denzel to find cover. Because I would have really liked for this to be the moment where we get the sense that Eli is surrounded by good vibes or, you know, he is protected by a higher power to where he does not fear bullets. He can stand in the middle of the street and take everything you've got and still return fire. He does eventually hide behind a car for for a movie that isn't quite subtle. I, I wish it would have been a little more in your face about the the level to which Eli is protected. I, I like this set piece. It's not a markout moment, but there are cool moments within it, like a dude from a rooftop shoots and misses, but you get to see you get to see the direction that that bullet came from, and that's how he knows, like, oh, there's someone like up and to the left or whatever. But yeah, he does. I thought that too, where I was like, oh, did he just like the collar of his shirt got clipped by Ray Stevenson, and it was one of those like it was a close one, but the cool thing is that Eli doesn't flinch or whatever. But then I rewatched. A lot of like the middle chunk of this movie today, because like I said, like I did for a little bit, like stop taking notes the first time through and I wanted to like go back through. And so I rewatched this moment and he, it doesn't pass him by. It goes straight into his backpack. And so that is a moment of, okay, what did happen there? Like, I don't think he has a bunch of like baking sheets, you know, <laughs> into this backpack. There's a book. We all know that. And I don't know. There's an iPod, you know, in a side pocket, but there's not much else. So what is going on here? And I guess that is like, this is maybe like the first clearest example of like, he's on this divine mission. He is protected. And this is like the biggest like proof of that, I guess. And that leaves something a little unexplored. Because like you said, you know, yeah, he gets shot. It, it kind of goes through his backpack. But Ray Stevenson still feels compelled to stop shooting. Like, I almost wish like he had had a conversion in that moment, or at least it was a little more obvious that he had had a conversion. It's like, I shouldn't be doing this, at least not to him, at least not to this man. Exactly. At some point in this movie, I really thought, because they almost, it felt like in those moments, the moments like that with Ray Stevenson, I've, it really feels like they are clearly setting up the turn for these characters, you know, because- when it's all said and done, it's Ray Stevenson and Denzel Washington just squaring off. Ray Stevenson's, you know, he's, he's got a clear shot. He's got his gun up and he just has this like change of heart and just lowers his gun and lets this guy walk off. And I thought this was setting up where he's like, maybe there's something about this guy. And uh, why am I following orders from this bookworm over here and all that? And it doesn't really get explored beyond that. So, yeah, that really threw me off. But Eli escapes, Solara goes after him, Carnegie's been shot, and seemingly most of his men are dead, but that does not deter Carnegie. He's, he's, he still wants that fucking Bible. He's going after Eli. He's got some orders to declare, and one of those orders is, let's get a posse going, and let's get that Bible. In fact, I want to play some audio here. This is going to be Gary Oldman's shining moment with his accent. It's not a fucking book. It's a weapon. A weapon aimed right at the, the, the hearts and minds of the weak and the desperate. It will give us control of it. 
If we want to rule more than one small fucking town, we have to have it. People will come from all over. They do exactly what I tell them if the words are from the book. It's happened before. And it'll happen again. All we need is that book. So, I mean, I think you can hear it right there. You know, I'm not too far off with the Max Cady comparison from Cape Fear. Maybe a little Foghorn Leghorn mixed in. But it is definitely, you know, as we're talking about it, I think there is something evangelical about the way he presents his, his speeches or the way he, you know, he talks. I was tickled by this. It, it, it took me out of the movie a little bit. Not that I, you know, not that it took much to take me out of the movie, but uh, I, I was definitely aware of the accent. Oh, it's so good. I feel like it does kind of slip in and out. Or I almost wondered if, like, it, it's not a Gary Ullman thing of, like, he can't hold down the accent. I almost wonder if it's, like, oh, Carnegie is he knows the power of what this book can do. I will take on the persona of who pushes this. Yeah. And so uh, when when I really need to sell a point, I will really dig down deep and <laughs> deliver these moments. Also, super tiny little observation. When Gary Oldman gets shot, uh, he instantly sounds like Larry David. Uh, and he, <laughs> it's a little one. Listen, I'm not going to make. The, oh, no, it, we're, we're going to find that audio. Oh, yeah, there we go. It's uh, it's a nice side by side. He sounds just like Larry David. He's like, ah! but so Laura catches up to Eli and he's like, she's like, please take me with you. I'll, I'll show you where uh, Carnegie gets his water, which is some kind of like cave system, I guess. A lot of stalactites or what have you. She's like, so I can uh, travel with you, right? And Eli's like, yup. And then he's like, psych. And then he leaves Solara, but you see, he's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have left her. But Solara, she's fine. She can make it on her own, right? Who did she stumble across? Those same marauders and that bait lady from the beginning of the movie who's like, help me, help me. I'm an obvious trap, right? But uh, Solara does not have the uh, wasteland experience of Eli. And so she immediately falls for the trap. She's like, how can I help you, obvious trap lady? And she's obvious trap lady. He's like, no, get out of here. Just It's supposed to be a dude, not you. Urgh. These dudes are going to try to eat you. And sure enough, they, these marauders are there. They... Seem like they're real close to sexually assaulting Solara, but here come a couple well-timed and well-placed arrows shot by uh, Eli, who I, I guess has a bow and arrow this whole time. Oh, no, we already knew that because he killed that cat. What a fucking monster. <laughs> yeah, same bow and arrow he could have used at the very beginning when he was watching those people get attacked. Ha that's right. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, that were, to the point where it had me guessing, like, oh, maybe he picked up that bow and arrow later in the movie, but I think he just had it. I think he had appointments to keep. He, he didn't want to dilly-dally. <laughs> yeah, he got to stay on that path, man. Yeah, this moment is really not fun to watch, and uh, it's only neutralized by learning that you will instantly drop dead if you are shot in the dick by an arrow. Oh, instead of the most brutal way to die, not unlike getting shot in the gut in Reservoir Dogs, where it just like takes you days to die. Or the most brutal way to just not die and have to just live with this new reality that I yeah, now have yeah. an arrowed penis. Yeah, it's that was that guy just keeled over instantly. Yeah, it's a real shame. You know, I know the the arrow and the dick was sort of the punchline to the setup of this scene. But I got to tell you, the setup of the scene was some of the more effective stuff in the movie in terms of peril. When the bait lady recognizes Solara or knows that it's, you know, knows that it's Solara and she's like, just keep going. You know, this isn't for you. You know, you know, like she can sense the dread. Solara's slow to pick it up. I almost wish that this had been 
kind of a chase scene. You know, you've got the trucks and the and the cars set up on the side of the road, almost like a maze. Have her try to hide. Have her on the run from this gang instead of having the gang immediately catch her and, and put a real bad taste in your mouth for, for this part of the movie. Because also, I'll say this, same thing I thought about the first assault in this movie. They linger too long on these. Like, they really want you to get a sense of the brutality of the apocalypse when really... We know what the apocalypse is capable of. We have a sense as moviegoers of what a vast wasteland of desperation can feel like. We don't necessarily need to see that played out in some of its worst elements. Yeah, it's a real uh, Punch Mountain Mac Blake slogan of we get it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Where it's like the first seconds of this movie is the hero (laughs) shooting a cat so that he can cook it. Oh, and also use cat oil as a lip balm. Later, oh, my God. So, yeah, like, uh-huh, fun stuff. Yeah, that's right. Real quick, when Eli is trying to bargain or barter with the engineer to recharge his battery, engineer's like, I don't know, man, what can you trade me? Eli's like, I got cat oil. It's, it's just as good as lip balm. And the engineer's like, no, I don't want that. And he's like, come on, it's, it's great. And he's like, no, no, I don't. No, no. <laughs> it just goes on. Like one beat too far to where you realize, oh, Eli's a fucking freak. Like <laughs> the, fact that the engineer was like, no, nobody wants that. Stop. Fucking stop. Trying to sell me your cat oil. Ugh. <laughs> to put on my mouth? That's yeah. what it's for? <laughs> so this is the second time we meet the obvious trap lady. It's the second time we've seen her, you know, effectively luring someone to maybe their death. And the first time, you know, Eli just like leaves the lady alone. The second time... He comes across this person who has not learned their lesson. Uh, should he kill her? <laughs> I didn't think of that, but it is. Yeah, you you are really, really just disgusting bait. And like d- morally disgusting. Yeah, you are, you are just right back to business as usual after you saw so much carnage. I mean, it might have been the idea of the marauders and not her idea, but I don't know. That's, that's why I was like, are you going to take that risk? Or you can let this lady hook up with a couple other marauders and she'd be like, hey, I, we, me and my boys just do this thing. It was surprisingly effective. I pretend I can't work a shopping cart. And then when people <laughs> come to, you know, mansplain how to turn a shopping cart over, you eat that person. I feel, I don't know. I mean, look, I'm just glad that uh, I didn't have to make that choice. Well, I think, I think I've got a different perspective than you, Chauvinist Pigs. And I think <laughs> yeah, I would have liked if he had sort of set her free or converted her. Because, I mean, this is the second group of marauders he's killed, you know, associated with her. So who is left, rhetorically speaking? Like, you know, who is there to to help her with this trap from now on? I think it, as much as I might have rolled my eyes at something like this, if he had kind of, like, touched her and she saw the light or, no. you know, just something about his presence. I mean, in, in for a penny, in for a pound. You know, I would much mm-hmm. rather do that then kill her and just say, "Welp, good riddance to bad rubbish." If there was ever a job to utilize some silent quitting, it's yeah. <laughs> it's shopping cart trap lady. Yeah, you know, just pretend you didn't see that last group walking by. You were checking the wheel, make sure it was good and loose to convince the next group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just phone it in, lady. But Eli and Solara spend the night in an abandoned nuclear silo, where Eli provides some backstory into the war that ripped a hole in the sky. With Carnegie and his men on their trails, Eli and Solara find a seemingly abandoned house until they meet the residents of this house, George and Martha, played by Michael Gambon and Francis de la Tour, respectively. When Eli and Solara discover George and Martha are cannibals, they try to flee, but they're surrounded by Carnegie's army. Carnegie takes Eli's Bible and then shoots him. 
the surviving Carnegie gang rolls out, leaving Eli for dead. Uh, yeah, so here Eli talks a little bit more about his mission that he heard a voice inside his head that told him to go west to an unspecified place, and he's been walking the whole time. And also he talks a little bit about this war that set off those apocalyptic events. Yes, and he talks about them in vague and uncertain terms. So, you know, he's talking about the war and the Bible's relation to it. And you know, some said it was the reason for the war in the first place, but he's not he's not selling any of this information. Like, get better at oral history. If you know that, you know, this is it. This is how we communicate now. There's not going to be television or newspapers. It's just going to be spoken word passed from person to person. You've had 30 years. You got to sharpen your pitch by now. This section of the movie is the one where I like most, most, most like just wasn't really writing and taking it in. But you talking about that now about how vague he keeps the retelling of the war and what happened and maybe why it happened. It's a really funny parallel of the Bible itself mm-hmm. where this is a mysterious story and uh, could, you know, there's a lot of interpretations that you could t- pull from this. I mean, some say that this war happened because of this book itself. And then the skies opened. And it's all so like poetic to the point of not even really telling you what happened. Yeah, it that's an interesting point that I wasn't even thinking about till just now is just how much that parallels those teachings while also like not really explaining anything to her. I mean, this is someone who really wants to learn what's going on and you're really beating around the bush a lot. Well, I'd, I'd almost wish they leaned into that, though. I wish Eli had become, or I wish that it had become more of a sermon for Eli, where he's told this story a thousand times, he knows how to tell it, and maybe even plant a seed that he's also an unreliable narrator, because, you know, the Bible started as an oral tradition. It was, you know, it was passed along until somebody finally decided to write it down and keep a record of it. So I wouldn't have minded flowery elements, or I wouldn't have minded, you know, sort of refashioning it to make him a hero or a martyr or something like that. But it's just him kind of shrugging it off. Like, like it's more of a war experience. He doesn't want to talk about it. There's flashbacks, which I get, but it, it, that's not what this movie is. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, this is where the, the Christian part of this movie weighs on me a little bit. Like the idea that like, Oh, people blame the Bible for the war. And so they burned him and destroyed all of them. It's like, okay, but man, you're telling me, that there's no Bibles out there. Like they went to every home. Like no one was like, hide it under a mattress, uh, slip a different VHS cover over the Bible. Like they managed <laughs> this. Look, if the Bible caused the war to the point where people were like, look, no, happily, let us burn every Bible. This thing was a fucking mistake. And that speaks more against the Bible than it does for it. The fact that this was turned out to be such a burnable book that people were so willing to depart uh, burn their copies of the Bible. I don't know. It's a little, it's a little silly, but you know what? It's, uh, it's, uh, the book of Eli, I guess is what, is this what Eli says happened and it happened? Well, let me pose this with that in mind, a possible punch up. What if instead of wanting the book for himself and for his power, what if Carnegie is more of a zealot in the opposite direction where he believes the story that the book was evil, that, you know, that it needs to be destroyed then you have a formidable foe against the Bible. Instead of instead of both sides wanting it for its power, what if someone does villainize it? And, and you know, that's the thrust of the movie. I do kind of, I like the idea of this is powerful. It is possibly like the cause of all of this. And because of that, if there is like a scrap of it left out there, could it 
bring all this back around again. And so just trying to like, you know, almost like save the world from it or something like that. Sure. David, you made a couple of punch-ups that is pushing this movie more like harder into faith-based movies. You know, it's like your third punch-up is going to be like, and uh, it's like, you're not alone, Eli. And it's like ripped as fuck Jesus come down with like a chainsaw on each hand. <laughs> yeah. I, I, like I said, you know, if that's what this movie is, go for it. You know, I, it feels like this movie is pussyfooting around around wanting to be a faith-based movie, but then here comes executive producer Joel Silver. He's like, this movie needs tits. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're trying to do here. So like, I get the sense that this movie is struggling with itself while it's on screen. I kind of wish it would have committed. I, you know, it might be less of a movie for me, but I think it would have been more of a movie for other people. Uh, During the campfire scene where Eli and Solara are talking about stuff, you also get a brief look into Eli's backpack. And you see that he's got a name tag there, a Kmart name tag. It says, hi, my name is Eli, to indicate that Eli used to work at a Kmart, which is funny because is Kmart still even a thing in this country? No. I mean, because it went bankrupt around the time of this movie coming out, like 2011, 2012, I think. So, man, I don't know. Grasping at straws. I mean, I I just went to their website and, and yeah, Kmart is still a thing, but, you know, not where I live. Like, I haven't seen one in Texas in in a long time. It's funny because by putting that Kmart like name tag in there, that's supposed to be a quick get. Like you see that K and you're like, oh, I know what he did. He worked at Kmart. Whereas now for a lot of people, that's just an, a confusing reference. It might as well have been like, <laughs> you know, some Latin on there. Like, wait, well, well, like, oh, I need Robert Langdon to tell me where this guy worked, I guess. What a what a sick reference. <laughs> what a sick reference. Yeah, that I would have a hard time explaining that to people more so than the war that destroyed everything. Uh, Kmart is like a it's like a value club. There's like low prices every day. Can you imagine a sad Target? <laughs> well, it's kind of like a Walmart that um, didn't really go for the jugular <laughs> enough, I guess. <laughs> but Solara and Eli end up at Cannibal Manor, and they realize these people are cannibals because their hands are shaking. Eli's like, "Just see their hands shake." There's too much human meat they've been eating, which I guess because they have Kuru or one of those like weird diseases you get from eating uh, other other humans, which that's why the engineer, Tom Waits, checked Eli's hands earlier in the movie because he he wanted to make sure he wasn't a cannibal, which why? You wouldn't do business with a cannibal? Like, I feel like he would. This scene, this whole set piece with this old couple, it's... I am real torn on like, there are parts of it that I like. I love the reveal when they, you know, the husband takes Denzel and Solara, Solara, uh, uh, to the backyard to show them like, see, I can prove uh, how well we handle ourselves. Here's a graveyard of visitors. And like that reveal when uh, Denzel's just like, oh yeah, thanks. Yeah, we'll be right inside. We got to get out of here. And like, I, I, there's a creepiness, almost like a Twilight Zone creepiness to that stuff that I really like. And then I don't, know if i love or very much don't the like amped up ramped up like (laughs) we're we're senior citizen terminators yeah this is for me this is arguably the coolest part of the movie yeah this this does have a lot of tension to it this reminded me a lot of the part in zodiac where um where jake gyllenhaal has to go down into charles fleischer's basement to find that movie poster and you're like, is this guy the Zodiac killer? Is he going to trap Jake Gyllenhaal anyway? Like there's that feeling of dread where you don't quite, you're supposed to think they're nice. You're supposed to think they're kind, but something's up about yeah. them. 
And as far as like the hands shaking go, that's a cool moment too when you finally do reveal this thing that they've been teasing for much of the movie. You know, a lot of people have been checking for shaking hands, but this is all we get out of it. It's we're headed toward the end of the second act. It's Michael Gambon and his wife for some goddamn reason. And it's explained in that moment and that's it. When on the other hand, no pun intended, but this could have been a part of the world. This could have been one of the dangers that you face while being out there in the road. We're just seeing it in this in this house, and it's pretty much confined to that. I don't know. I felt a little cheated out of it. Yeah, it definitely, especially where there's so many times in like sci-fi genre movies of you have to reveal, oh, if I have this tattoo, that means this. Or you've got this marking and that. So every time someone's like, let me see your hands. I thought like, oh, are they looking for one of those? Are they looking for some kind of symbol? And then I, I, I like kept thinking like, ah, Denzel's wearing gloves. I don't know what they're looking for. And so, yeah, to learn that it's just like you're human being food poisoned. Yeah, it it is a little, <laughs> it is a little bit of like a, a wet blanket kind of reveal. Yeah. What do you think, Mac? You like these old people? No, I'm anti-cannibal, Brian. So (laughs) Eli and Solara are like, we got to get the fuck away from these cannibals. But then the Carnegie gang shows up and Eli and Solara are like, let's team up with these cannibals because it's time for another action set piece. Shootout at Cannibal Manor. This, This might be our final one. The cannibals die and it looks like... Eli and Solara are holding their own and it turns out in the back of this old bank truck, beep, beep, beep. I do like the fact <laughs> that this truck still beeps when it backs up. I thought that was funny. <laughs> the doors fly open. They have a giant fucking mini gun. There's like, you know, laying waste to this house. And then Eli comes out because they capture Solara. And he's like, tell you what, if you let Solara go, I'll give you the book. And sure enough, he gives them the book. They take Solara and they shoot Eli. Now, here's the thing about Denzel Washington, and this is a weird compliment to give somebody, but it, it's honestly true. No one takes a gunshot like Denzel Washington. He is by far and away our best, I'm being shot or I've just been shot actor. Check out his fucking machine gun shimmy in Training Day or the way he acts after being shot in Man on Fire. He's just, he's too good. He's too good at getting shot. It makes me wonder, has he been shot? Has he shot other people instead of them on film? I mean, it's not surprising that one of the greatest actors is great at this one particular thing, but it's not that he's great at it. He's better than everyone else, and it's, there's no second place, right? He's just, he's just the fucking best <laughs> at it. My only other shout-out to a just-been-shot actor, and I know I'm talking about this way too much, George Clooney in the movie The American, when he looks down and he sees so much blood he's losing, and he pounds on the steering wheel right at the end of the movie, it's a hell of a fucking movie. So Ooh, maybe yeah, a distant yeah. third, my man, the Clune Dog. But but yeah, just a another amazing just been shot performance. Because after he got shot, he like pulls out a knife because he's like, oh, I'm gonna fuck you up. But then he just like drops the knife because he's just been shot. I will say he gets shot, and everybody on that cast gets a nice slow motion entire face filling the screen reaction moment where they cut around to everybody like, huh? what it was like uh it's like the snl sketch the californians where they just zoom in on all their faces so as good as denzel is in those moments this is a movie where they end up accidentally making me laugh a lot in these dramatic moments because they're trying to milk it for all it's worth but i don't think they quite have the ability to give it the weight it needs when they do those things 
But folks, Carnegie's army, they're heading home with Eli's Bible and Claudia's daughter. But Solara makes a daring escape and steals a truck. She returns to the cannibal house to recover Eli's body, but Eli's not there. He's still alive and still headed west. Solara picks up Eli and her stolen truck and they make their way west to the ocean. Carnegie decides not to pursue them because he can't wait to get home to read his Bible. Eli and Solara make their way to the Alcatraz Historical Preservation Society and hand over the real Bible, the one in Eli's head. The Bible Carnegie has is in Braille. Turns out Eli has been sort of blind maybe this whole time. What? Carnegie's Braille Bible is rendered worthless as Alcatraz Press places a Bible in every hotel room in the apocalypse. So back when uh, Carnegie was putting together a policy, uh, Red Ridge, played by Ray Stevenson, was like, uh, this dude, Eli, is an ass kicker, but I will join your policy if you give me Solara. I want to just own Solara, I guess, because that's the kind of human I am. And now that uh, the Carnegie gang now has Solara and Eli is presumably dead, you know, Red Ridge is feeling pretty comfortable and he's like looking at Eli's uh, Muschetti and he just, uh, the director of it, and he, he puts it down on the dashboard of the car. And so when this car gets blown up, where do you think this uh, machete ends up? Right in Red Ridge's chest. Oh, Ray Stevenson, you never did get to kick a single ass in this movie, did you? Because he, he's, he's been, he's dead. It was such an unglorious death. It was kind of an improbable death. Like he would have had to have been holding it to his chest. Like, hey, look at me, I'm getting stabbed. <laughs> and then he, you know, the, the car crashes or whatever. So I didn't quite buy that. I felt, again, I felt cheated by the loss of Ray Stevenson, but this movie's got places to be. We got to get rid of him. We got to get Solara a a free truck. Boy, that death specifically, there was like three beats to that death that really snowballed in my head where you kind of like the dust settles and you see, like you said, like somehow this thing inexplicably went bullseye through the chest of this guy he realizes that he's looking down he not only realizes that and dies no 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 no. i'm going to slide this machete out of my own rib cage and then i'm going to set it down and then still not pass away i'm going to open the door and excuse myself sorry i've got places to go die and he gets out of the car which was so funny to me that he just kind of ducked out like that and then just to make sure this movie is so religiously on the nose, gets down on his knees and just like points his face up in the sun to just like, let me bask in this light and then die. This was a get the fuck out of here mark out moment for me. (laughs) It was just, it was one of those like, what are we doing? Eye rolling. Like this is, this is too much. And so uh, it, it just, it made me, giggle then chuckle then full out laugh and i was like all right you got me damn it movie this whole thing was a head scratcher for me um well you know it starts off with solara choking out the original driver she absconds with the the truck redridge gets stabbed in the process but then solara gets out of the truck kind of waiting for carnegie and his men to turn back around and thankfully she finds a grenade in the in the truck that she just flipped over and stole But up until that point, I'm going to bring back uh, a recurring segment that has become quickly a fan favorite. (laughs) It's called, what was the plan here? What was the plan after the truck flipped? Had she not found out the grenade, was she just going to stand there and like, I hope I can punch a truck? I I don't know. In a movie that's supposed to be really gritty and just grimy and dirty, like those moments where she rolls the grenade and the camera follows along with the grenade and the explosion, it's too stylish and sleek 
for this movie. Like they kind of like they butt heads with, with each other. And uh, yeah, this kind of goes into a punch up. I guess I'll talk about the end too. But yeah, it's those moments like they don't fit or they don't execute them in this movie the way that it would fit like the style of the rest of the movie. Uh, well, after Solaro, you know, blows up that truck, uh, Carnegie turns right to the camera and goes, uh, well, that's got to hurt. And then he says, the less said about that, the better. And then he says, you don't see that every day. And instead of pursuing Solara, he decides to go back to town. Because again, he can't wait to read this Bible. On the way home, he's like trying to Jimmy open the lock on this Bible. And he's like, oh, I just, this is such a tricky, weird Bible lock. Because of course, everyone puts really complex locks on their Bibles. Because last thing they want is someone else reading their Bible. And when they finally do open the Bible, you get the reveal here that the Bible is in Braille. Oh my God. Carnegie sacrificed so much and he cannot read it. However, his old lady, Claudia, she's blind. And he invites her up to translate the Bible, make her read it. And I think this is a really cool moment here where Claudia like touches the pages of the Bible and she feels the Braille. And she just gets this, like her face lights up and she's so happy. Now you could interpret it as her being like, the Bible, my old friend, Honestly, I don't think you even need that. Just the fact that she was like, oh my God, a Braille book. Like I haven't even. Yeah. And she kind of quickly realizes what it is. And then is like, oh, I, uh, it's been so long. I've forgotten how to read Braille, which is the most obvious lie, but it's okay. Because she's fucking done with Carnegie because Carnegie pimped out her daughter. And she's like, oh yeah, those dudes downstairs, they're tearing apart your bar. The ones who would not even like dare to make eye contact with you. And by the way, you smell that? Your fucking leg, it's raw. It's like infected. You're going to be dead soon. You're feverish. I'm out of here. So yeah, I thought that was a cool moment of, of Claudia uh, getting the upper hand on Carnegie. And yeah, I mean, it would have been nice to have Carnegie like gunned down in the streets like any kind of action movie villain. But the fact that he watched his empire crumble and he, he gets the bitter pill of like, oh, the one thing he wanted wasn't quite what he expected and now he's fucked. It, it was effective. It was a cool like snowball moment of realizing I can't even use this book that it's the one and only thing that I've been trying so hard to obtain. I can't get that. I'm decomposing as we speak. This place that I've built is crumbling. It is a cool acceleration of everything. And I, yeah, it, it, enough so that I guess it is still satisfying that you don't, like you said, see him just like mowed down or whatever. It is still like what you see happening behind him when he's on that balcony is, is still brutal enough and shocking that yeah it all works one thing i was wondering like as much as i was wondering earlier how christians perceive this movie i was also wondering like what do blind people think of this movie you know like earlier when denzel and uh, mila kunis are walking down the highway and he stops and he's like wait you hear that and he like crouches down on the highway i was like please don't like touch the road to feel vibrations like oh a car's coming but he still like stands up and he like can hear just a bird flying and he knocks it out with an arrow the same way with in this moment where gary oldman's lady friend is like i might be blind but i can smell your you're so sick and i can feel you're so hot and it's just like what what is this daredevil stuff that we're doing to these real people i don't know that was just a little thing that i just wondered like how is this all perceived but still a cool sort of a exit for this movie's villain. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sad to say this didn't pass through my logic comb because you've got a war 
that tore a hole in the sky. You know, the sun presumably became extra hot, or maybe that's just the the nuclear winter that that was created from it. Yeah, it, I guess the ozone layer is just gone now. But a generation of people, it seems to me, ended up blind, which I don't think would have affected people who are already blind. So I think at some point, Braille and the ability to read Braille would have been passed down as the new thing to learn. Mm. So for Claudia and Eli to be the only two people left in the world who could read Braille did not add up for me. Most of the people in this apocalypse were illiterate. Like, you know, blind or, or seeing they couldn't fucking read. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I imagine they have free time. But to your point, Mac, this was an awesome moment for Jennifer Beals. Uh, this was an awesome moment for Claudia. You know, I think in that moment, just to see the relief on her face, whether it was because it was a Bible, whether, you know, it was because Carnegie was foiled, I think she finally had her way out. You know, this was finally the leverage she needed to say, you're nothing without this and you don't even have this. Uh, there, was, there was something really poignant about that. Overall, though, this did not land with me. This is Punch Mountain, not Lessons Mountain. I don't really like seeing my villains get foiled. I like seeing them get eaten up by a combine, like, you know, by, a, you know, get, <laughs> getting drowned in a grain silo. But uh, yeah, if you, get, if you guys like Lessons, this is cool, I guess. <laughs> if I like Lessons, okay, okay. I guess while we're also on discussing the final moments, at least on screen, of Carnegie, I was reflecting on, like, what is Carnegie's leverage in this whole thing? Why is anybody being a second in command or a henchman to this dude he's just like a guy that likes books in a world where the two distinctions you can make of your character is do i eat people or do i not eat people and this guy is just like these uh, uncivilized <laughs> Uh, like, why is anyone listening to this dude? Or Brian, why up- don't we all rise up against our uh, the billionaire class and eat them? You know what I mean? It's because at some point he had something other people needed, which in this case was he knew where the fresh water was. And he gets leverage over one dude. Next thing you know, he's teamed up with a bunch of bullies and they got leverage over other people. Next thing you know, he's like, come to my office where I need to pontificate about uh, what <laughs> books is good for learnings and what books is good for burnings. But I mean, that's re- that really is it. He just wanted to vertically integrate where he's like, okay, I've got a captive audience. Now I just need a message to impart on them to put them further under my control. But Eli keeps blindly uh, walking uh, out west. And he sees uh, Alcatraz, and I guess God was like, get thee to a prison, which who is this God, the American criminal justice system? And because he shows up at Alcatraz, and everyone there is taking a shower recently, and he's like, "Uh, I got a Bible. And they're like, wait, where's your Bible? Because we, the audience, know that uh, Carnegie's got the Bible. And he's like, the Bible's in here. I memorized it. I'm that boring that I memorized the entire fucking <laughs> Bible. But who is uh, in charge of this weird, like UC Berkeley, uh, I forget what school it is, that's like, you know, the Restart Civilization Project at Alcatraz. Uh, he's, he's an uncredited actor. So it's a cameo. Mac, this, this is going to be a cameo by Malcolm McDowell, which was, you know, it was exciting to see him in this movie, but I why be uncredited? Uh, that's a weird... That's a weird Hollywood thing that I don't quite get, but uh, it, it was nice to see him in this role in the last five minutes of the movie. Oh, because I guess if he was credited, you'd be like, when's Malcolm McDowell going to show up? Kind of like uh, when I saw the Guy Pierce, one of my, it's <laughs> a very engaging actor. When he was credited in the movie The Road, the entire time I'm like, when is Guy Pierce going to show up? And then it's like, oh, the last three minutes. Uh, calm down, Mac. 
So Malcolm McDowell plays Lombardi. He's running this preservation society. They want to make sure that the world lives on after the apocalypse. Uh, but one person that I didn't see in the movie is Lombardi's assistant, because for the rest of the movie, he is tasked with dictating every word out of Denzel's mouth. He's page after page. He's writing a Bible for Christ's sakes. And so, like, he couldn't have passed this off to somebody. Like, we couldn't have seen Malcolm McDowell just kind of peeking his head in, like, dipping a tea bag into a cup to be like, how's it coming? Great. And then just leave while some underling takes care of it. Yeah, and they do make him this, like, long, white-haired, like, this guy has really lived through some stuff. Like, you're going to make this guy just sit here and write down every single word. Like, you're going to kill this man. And also, like, I'm sure it was his pleasure. I'm sure he's one of those guys who's like, oh, I get off on writing about the Bible. But, like, (laughs) who's to say he didn't put his own stuff in there where it's like, and then Lombardi came on the scene (laughs) and hung like a horse he was. And, you know, like, he repopulated the land. But you see Eli is dictating the Bible, you know, lying down, and he's now, like, in a nice, clean white shirt. He got a haircut. He's freshly shaved. Like, oh, I guess doctors were able to help him. Not really. He's, he just dies a little slower, but still pretty quick. Because as soon as he's like, yeah, there's the whole Bible. He's dead. Uh, and they, they <laughs> bury him in a corner in Alcatraz. Oh, yeah. Jeepers. Let us not forget that he was shot 20 minutes ago in this movie. But yeah, he made it all the way to Alcatraz, was able to dictate. And that was, you know, there's something pointing about it. It's it's lost on me. But like, yeah, he served his purpose. He He had one mission. He carried it out. And now he's gonzo. That like white robed baby smooth head look at the end was that possibly he looked he saw himself and just he willed himself to die because i hated that look he for the whole movie he looks so cool he looks like a walter white in the final couple episodes of breaking bad and now he is this (laughs) baby smooth no thank you well, then I wasn't sure if that was some sort of religious ceremony where it's like, before you pass on, you need to be wearing this. You need to be clean shaven. Right. And I didn't want to say anything to a fan. I was like, I'm just going to let this go. It it doesn't add up to me. But that's how he wants to go. That's how he wants to go. Even, you know, talking about like how this movie is trying to or I was wondering, is this like based on a graphic novel? It's looking like a, a Zack Snyder movie. Those moments when Denzel and Mila Kunis are in the rowboat heading to Alcatraz, there are some shots in there that straight up look like generated by CGI. Like they are, yeah. especially compared to the rest of the movie where you have like acclimated to this world. They are so jarring. And also Mila letting Denzel row that boat as he's bleeding out. Solid, sweet move. But yeah, I just thought those were weird moments to just point out. Maybe I'm being too nitpicky. I don't know. No, you're not. It's, it is so late in the movie to be taken out of the movie, especially when, you know, you get a sense of the environment around you. It's, it's a tactile environment. You can, you can touch the ground. You can, you know, splash in the water, but like as they're rowing out to Alcatraz and I know like they probably couldn't get permits to row out to Alcatraz or didn't want to put their stars in that danger, but it's like sky captain levels of, Not a real environment. Like, they are clearly on a set in front of a screen rowing in a a, a boat that's just rocking back and forth by some PAs. It's video game cutscene is what it looks like. Yeah, it it just, yeah, it was strange. And it's, uh, there's a lot of little reveals here and moments after the villain has been vanquished. It is a little bit of that, like, watching The Dark Knight after the Joker's been captured. You're like, oh, so we still have 20 minutes. Okay. 
So question for the panel, you know, now that the now that the spoiler, I guess, has been revealed or the, you know, the big twist of the movie has been revealed. When did you know that Eli was blind in this movie? Did you do you have a point in this movie where you knew first viewing? Maybe not. They do a good job of both telegraphing it, but in little ways, you know, like when they uh, come upon that old couple who end up the, the cannibal terminators, you know, and he's like, no trespassing it. You read the sign or whatever. And Denzel's like, oh, sorry, I, I didn't see it. You can play. There's a lot of little moments like that where you could play it off as like, he's just trying to not ruffle feathers here. He's just trying to like, I want to just move on. I've got this mission. I'm just trying to be polite. And so you've got a lot of those there on the, my second viewing when I think it's when he's like at the very beginning of the movie, he's in that house where he finds that where he gets the boots and all that. He does like bump into a table, but it's like it's all so subtly done. I wasn't surprised that they didn't do a like montage reveal, like six cents style at the end of this movie to show you like, oh, we put all these breadcrumbs and yeah, you could have put these pieces together, but you know, we made it subtle enough, but I don't know. Did you guys pick up on that? I I don't know if I did initially. Uh, The first watch this movie. No, at the end of the movie, I was like, oh, I guess he just knows Braille. I did not get that he was blind at all, which maybe I'm fucking stupid because there I was looking up later after watching the movie second time recently, like the list of all the little like times he's like, oh, he's kind of blind or he does something a visually impaired person would do. But what about you, David? When did you realize that Eli was blind or partially blind? Uh, I'll say this. I knew it going in because, like I said, this was my first watch in 2023. So by now it has been spoiled. But even watching it with that knowledge I can tell you for certain I wouldn't have picked up mm-hmm. on it. Like, because Denzel does, so, you know, he's not overt with it. He's not like staring off into the middle distance, tapping his cane, you know, that kind of thing. Like, he's so cool that you get the sense that he's just the kind of person who wouldn't really make eye contact with somebody. He would be kind of aloof and kind of distant. You know, people aren't worth his time necessarily. So the way he interacts with other people made sense. But there's no fucking way I would have picked up on that. Yeah, I I guess too there is the um they they have the benefit of there's a lot of the population that they've only become blinded because of the effects of the war and all that. So for all we know, he spent the first 40, 50 years of his life or whatever. I don't know how old he's supposed to be. But uh, you know, like so maybe he knows he has that like muscle memory or something, but then it's like, I also was wondering like, why are you playing that fact about yourself so close to the vest? Or is he not? Is it just the movie doing that? Like, is he protecting himself or is it, is it purely just a twist for the movie? And then if so, is it just for that reveal of like, uh, he's been so touched by the hand of God that this is what he's able to do, I guess is what it's probably trying to do. Well, it's, it's funny because there is a few different theories at least online about it. So one is that he's just been blind his whole life. Uh, another one is that he was blinded by the flash. I guess he stared at a the explosion of a nuclear weapon or something like that and was, was blinded at that moment. Another theory is that he grew up blind, but then when he got this mission, when the voice of God in his head came to him, it made it so he could see. And then once his mission is complete, he lost his vision again Someone's like, if you look at his eyes, like they're clear, but at the end they're like a little cloudy. I don't know. I will say that it's kind of a a bit of a cheap reveal, just because of the idea of like, oh, he's not like when we say when someone says blind, it's like, oh, you cannot see. Like you open your eyes and there is darkness. But that is not the case. 
with Eli. He he's you know perhaps severely visually impaired. Like maybe he can only see like shapes or something like that. But he's he's not like he does have some vision. And so the reveal that his Bible's in Braille and that it's like oh he's partially visually impaired. It's not as quite as like oh my god he's dead like Bruce Willis in that movie. And so but the things he does. You know, he does things that fucking Daredevil can do. It's like, oh, well, you know, he's blind. His other senses are heightened. It's like, I don't know, man. So I guess my question to you is, all right, now that it is out in the open, he is visually impaired. Does that reveal work for you? For me, no, it doesn't. There's almost something about it that's kind of backdoor insulting, where it's sort of, you know, because we find out that uh, Eli is visually impaired and we find out that, you know, the Bible lives in his head. And that the Bible that he has is Braille. It almost assigns this sort of uh, worthlessness to the Braille Bible, you know, because Gary Oldman can't read it and Claudia refuses to read it. So you might as well just burn it. You know, it's just it's Tinder at this point. But it's like, no, it's still of value to somebody. There's just a segment of the population that can't read it. Like you can still have the Bible committed to Eli's memory without the device of blindness. It's just something to make people feel like, I would have never been able to read that Bible then. I don't know. It, it comes off as weird. I mean, if you're saying it's possibly a little ableist, I could see that. But yeah, it's just like a, a bitter pill there for Carnegie to swallow. And the fact that he does not have time to track down someone else who can read Braille because his rotting leg is going to kill him. That's something. But uh, one of the things people pointed out is like an obvious clue that uh, Eli was blind is that apparently Eli in the Bible is blind. Look, man, if knowing the Bible is a requirement to watch in a movie, uh, I'm out forever. But Eli is dead. They bury him in a who-gives-a-shit grave. And Solara is, um, she does what now? What? What does she do? She's on her own. She's got a mission. She takes Eli's machete and she says, I have something to do now. What that is, the movie is not clear. I am assuming she's spreading the word. I am assuming she is loaded with a Bible and she is off to let people know about uh, about Jesus Christ and, and all the cool stuff in that book. I would hope she'd be going to try and get her mom uh, from Carnegie's <laughs> control. But I guess she's like, well, it was a nice ride, mom. That final moment. Ah, man, I like the things that I like in this movie, but I don't feel like her little bookend in that movie is earned. I think they played her so innocently and so naively, you know, because she was so sheltered and she's in her like very like four wall bubble that she witnessed stuff, but you never saw her learn or like anything passed down to her. So to her, like grab a machete and do this like Sarah Connor cosplay to end this movie, it just like doesn't land. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, I think it goes back to to a point you made earlier where I think if this was a preteen actor, this hits a little harder where, you know, she was naive. This journey grizzled her. This journey gave her a sense of purpose. And now she is armed with a machete and she's out to spread the word. You know, it, it's like my boys in Blink said, I guess this is growing up. It sounds like y'all won't be buying tickets to see Book of Solara, the sequel to this movie that was never made. But folks, we are closing the book because that is the end of the Book of Eli. All right, how many markout moments did y'all have? How many moms up in this bitch? I had a goose egg. I'll be very honest with you. Hearing you guys talk about the opening fight got me really close, but I, I, I can't quite get there. I, I went zero on this one. How about you, Mac? One, Brian Gutman. Yeah, I had my one hand chop, and then I had the Ray Stevenson 
bonkers death. That was the eye roll mom. So I'll I'll, th- I'll say two. Cool. Okay. Is it someone's favorite movie? Yes, Religious Teens. Are you kidding me? Some uh, some 16-year-old at some youth academy? They sh- they're showing this to all of their buddies after skating night. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely believe so. Yeah, this is uh, Church Lock-In After Dark. This is the rated R movie that you're allowed to see. Yeah, this is, if Ted Cruz wants to show off in front of his like 12-year-old kid, he's like, oh, I'll put on a movie for you. Like, this is probably what he puts on, which is unfair because it's not a bad movie. You know, I enjoy it. But yeah, it puts its thumb a little too heavily on the Christian scale uh, there at the end. All right, time for punch-ups. We're the ultimate script doctors. Everybody knows that. How would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? David, let's start with you. I've got a few. I'll start off with the with the elephant in the room, I guess. This movie doesn't need the sexual brutality that it has. You could really cut two minutes of this movie and have an exponentially better movie. And I think it, it plays more to the audience that it, it might be intending. But let's have some fun punch-ups here. One, I, I would like to see Eli have a personality. I'd like to, you know, blade him up a little bit. Like, have him be, he's been walking the earth for 30 years. He knows what he's doing. You know, he has his routine down. I would like to see him kind of carry himself with a little bit of arrogance. Like, you really want to step in front of Eli? You really want to stand in the way of my mission? I'll tear you to shreds. Like, I, especially with Denzel. Like, Denzel is such a charismatic presence. To sort of nerf him a little bit in this movie, they do a disservice with a number of acting roles in this movie. I, I think I would have liked to have seen more of a personality out of Denzel. My third punch-up, more pertinent to the mountain itself, more action. I think we only have three action set pieces in this movie. The last one happens at the beginning of the third act. We still have a lot more movie left to go. Let's put a bomb on Alcatraz or something. Let's Whoa. you know, let's get a ticking time bomb. Something. I don't a bomb on Alcatraz. Yeah, that's that sounds fun. That sounds good. That sounds like there's stakes. Like this movie doesn't really have a ton of stakes. It is just, will he make it or won't he make it? Let's action up this action movie. Those are my punch-ups. How about y'all? Yeah, maybe uh, I tighten and cinch this movie a bit. You know, talking about like the pacing of all of the connective tissue in between the action where it is, I, I, I think it's what they're going for. But I think if you just did little chops at the end of like transition moments, cut some of the you know, those more disturbing moments out of there. And you'd still have a movie that's an hour 40, hour 45, that just, it's got a little more of a clip to it that would just kind of keep things alive a bit. So that's that's the first punch up. Number two, kind of along the lines of, you want to see more Denzel being Denzel. I want to even just like, let's Gary Oldman the heck out of it. I want to see big fifth element Gary Oldman, you know, like he's supposed to essentially be the devil. I want to see him just devil it up. And especially like, you know, as he gets sick, you just like put scales on him, do something like let's just like let's feel the heat coming off of that dude and just like get him crazy as Gary Oldman can absolutely do. The third one, we've got good fights, albeit they're short fights, but they're good. I think a way you add a little uh, fun to them is a lesson we learned in a previous Punch Mountain episode, even just in conversation, put no diggity behind oh. those fights. That song, it's got a nice chill build at the top. If that, as he pulls the machete out in the bar, ooh, baby, get out of town, Charlie Brown. This movie, 
is now solid. You touch me with that hand again, you're going to lose it. Play on, player. <laughs> it's just... I mean, Mac, I got chills. Fourth one, at the very end, it's this movie, nuclear apocalypse, whatever happened, this irradiated world. As Mila Kunis walks out to go on her own adventure, she steps out of Alcatraz, and she's smushed by a massive scaly foot. The camera pans up to reveal that there's a new god, Zilla, in town, baby. Oh, I love it. I love it. There we go. So the Flash was his his awakening, uh, his yes. atomic yeah. breath. Yeah. Absolutely. Those are my punch-ups. I want to see a couple more like hints of a possible future, right? Because uh, there's some events in this movie that uh, we, our society, never never realized. So, like maybe when Eli finds that corpse in the beginning of the movie, like hanging, maybe his T-shirt or like is like the Beatles are back, like Lennon lives or something, or like Mario Kart 38 <laughs> or something. Just something to give us a hint of a future that we never got to see. Also, another punch up the the Bible. That book is boring as fuck, especially the King James uh, version, right? And the fact that Lombardi, this this educated man, he had to transcribe all of it. There was no part where he was like, come on, right? Like I was thinking about <laughs> the part where uh, this dude Balaam is beating up his donkey and God makes the, the donkey talk. Like just at least like a director's cut where Denzel Washington is like on his deathbed and he's like, and Balaam said unto the ass, because thou hast mocked me, I would there were a sword in mine hand, for now I would kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass, a podge, which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I? And then just have Malcolm and Dal go, oh, come on. And then just like throw down his quill. <laughs> or just like, like you said, David, like act like he's writing this part down. And he's like, no one needs this. Society, a talking donkey, this isn't helping anybody. Like, you know, even Gary Oldman's character, if he was like reading this part of the donkey, I feel like his hordes would have been like, let's turn against this guy. Let's chomp Carnegie because uh, <laughs> this dude's talking about some talking donkey. I don't know, though. Look at the popularity of the Shrek movies. Maybe maybe this donkey was key. <laughs> Who knows? All right. Please join me in the Punch Mountain video store. It's an all-action movie video store, as you know. We have three copies of the Book of Eli. Because it's an all-action movie video store, each shelf is a different subsection of action. So... David, where would you uh, stock these copies? Well, let me knock out two real quick. One's going to go in Apocalypse action. We've already got The Road Warrior there. I think we've got others. Oh, Pitch Black, uh, maybe. I don't fucking remember. There's a there's a shelf there, and it's going to be right at home there. Second copy is going to go in the Denzel shelf. He's got an action career. Is this our first Denzel movie? It this is. is. Welcome to the Mountain, Denzel Washington. This will not be our last. I am for certain of that. So my third copy, I'm going to gift to our guest, Brian Gutman. Brian, where would you like to see this third copy go? Oh, no. I definitely knew Apocalypse. I definitely knew Denzel. Let's say this last one goes in, oh, come on now, action. (laughs) (laughs) Or we get it, action. There's definitely more of a message than a uh, mission to entertain. Uh, uh, That's too, that's too negative. I'll I'll give you, I'll give you a hand on this one, because I had a couple that that I was considering on the short list. One would be faith-based action. Like, I I really don't want to be cynical Mm -hmm. about this movie and, and what it's what it's trying to do. I think for what it's trying to do, it it does it fairly well. I wouldn't mind having a shelf of other movies that kind of have a, a Bible thumping message. <laughs> Bible thumping. Maybe that's a section. It's like Bible bruisers or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. 
My other thought was 2000s action. You know, that decade, that, that post 9-11 decade, so far has been known for being, for taking itself a little too seriously and for being a little too heavy handed. I think this would be right at home with some other 2000s I think 2000s action is perfect. I meant to ask you guys about that if this movie feels like it falls in that almost uh, Olympus has fallen kind of vibe of like, yeah, we're going to we're going to go real serious with this. For me, 100 percent. Yeah. Now it's time to open the books on the mountain and, and discover the position of the Book of Eli on Punch Mountain itself, a.k.a. the definitive ranking of action movies. And as a reminder, currently at the summit, the top of the mountain, it's Terminator 2 Judgment Day at number one, followed by Raid 2, The Matrix, Jurassic Park, Hard Boiled, John Wick, and Speed at number seven. Oh, back-to-back Reeves. Reeves? Back-to-back Keanu. Who's ever called him Reeves? <laughs> just, it felt really weird. And uh, at the bottom of the mountain, right there, just, you know, before you get to the mountain park where it's just all those feral sphinx cats, yum, yum, yum. You just want to <laughs> kill them and eat them. At number 45, currently, it is the film, the piece of cinema known as Chappie. Uh, before we reveal the mountains ranking, where would you all stick this movie? I'll go first. Um, low, period, full stop. And I don't mean to be malicious about it. You know, let's talk about this in the context of an action movie. It just doesn't have a lot of action set pieces. The ones that it does have, they're very quick. They're very, we say this word a lot, but they're very utilitarian. They serve a purpose in the movie rather than glamorizing action or stunts or violence or anything like that. So I'm just not quite sure it's going to cut the mustard. I will say, however, as, as a caveat to, to that uh, opinion... I think the victory of this movie, and I'm saying this to Brian specifically, this was your pick. You know, we, we've kind of uh, put it through the ringer a little bit, but I think the victory is talking about this movie. We've done, oh, let's say a couple of hours at least talking about this movie. <laughs> I enjoyed talking about it. I enjoyed watching it. It's not a forgettable movie. I think there's a victory there, but I'm not quite sure the victory is going to be reflected on the mountain rankings. Yeah, I, I was happy to have this movie selected in the sense that it's like oh yeah Denzel does deserve to get his name on the mountain in a movie that isn't a bad movie and does absolute I would be shocked to find out it doesn't have its audience both in action and the message and all that and those action moments are good they are just they are quick moments that are just bullet points in a movie that's there to more tell a story than kind of dazzle or shock or excite so uh, yeah, as much as those moments are good, they are kind of, they're just sprinkles on this moment, on this movie. So uh, yeah, I, I won't be surprised uh, if uh, if it's not on part of the mountain where snow has uh, appeared yet. <laughs> yeah, I thought the action in this movie was good, but yeah, it's kind of action light. However, I, I was glad that we, we did it for those reasons. I was glad to do a Denzel movie. I was glad to do a movie that probably would not have come to mind as like, oh, let's do Book of Eli. And then also, I think this is a movie that I I bet a lot of people are like us. They've seen it. They kind of half remember it. Maybe they remember the twists of it. But thinking about it like, oh, as an action movie, maybe, you know, let's let's talk about it. So yeah, I, I'm expecting a, a lower position, but, but that is okay with me. Oh, look out for those falling rocks. Uh, shield your eyes or you'll get rock blindness. Okay. <laughs> the golden letters are appearing, revealing the position of Book of Eli, and it is 38. So that makes 36 The Driver, 37 The Dirty Dozen, 38 Book of Eli, followed by RoboCop 2 and Pitch Black. Uh, I enjoyed all of those movies, and I enjoyed Book of Eli. Um, oh, my God, do you hear that noise? Oh, that's the alarm on my Puma store. 
Brian, quit humble bragging that you manage a Puma. No, that's a horn calling us to action. On this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting the ALS Association. ALS Association is dedicated to discovering treatments and a cure for ALS, and to serve, advocate for, and empower people affected by ALS so they can live their lives to the fullest. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to the National ALS Association. Also, for every review we get an Apple podcast, we'll add $1 to that donation. Hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on the podcast. For more information on the ALS Association or to donate directly to them, visit ALS.org. Brian Gutman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me, Thank you for your continued support of the podcast. Do you have anything you want to plug, promote, or mention? Or maybe like a piece of media that you've been into recently, anything like that? Ooh, man, oh man. I uh <laughs> after watching this movie, I did watch Blade Trinity so I could see some action. Uh I've got a few shows coming up. I think by the drop of this episode, they may have passed. So everyone just follow me on Instagram, just at Brian Gutman. That's where I do all of my postings and goings on. And uh, I've got a uh, an album that I put out a, a wee bit ago on Sure Thing Records called That's How Scientists Talk. And that's on everything. So go to everything and get it. What Brian's not mentioned is that he's also a little bit of a shutterbug. You can check out his photography Instagram at Brian Gutman Photography, homestead.com. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Gutman Photography. That's Gutman with two N's at the end. You know, he's not Gutman, he's Gutman. Thank you for, for doing the show, buddy. Man, this I truly love this podcast so much. And uh, I uh, really appreciate you guys having me. And uh, let's let's do a movie we all like someday. Oh, now he's angling to get back on. Nice try. Folks, that'll do it for another edition of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. The link is in our link tree. The link tree is on our Instagram. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. Next week, the guests continue. We will be joined by the feral wife herself, Jimena Blake, as she presents to us from 2017, directed by David Leach and starring Charlize Theron. We're watching Atomic Blonde. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Brian, give me give us a bye. Bye. Oh, hell yeah. The best bye so far. Bye.